Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This favorable attitude of the American press toward the Entente powers was an enormous advantage to the latter. We were made to feel that the Entente was fighting the cause of the small and weak nations against the ruthlessness of a great bully. We were inevitably led to believe that the war had been started through the deliberate determination of Germany to initiate her alleged long-cherished plan to dominate the planet, while the Entente had proposed diplomatic settlement from the beginning and had only taken up arms in self-defense with the utmost reluctance. This theory of the German provocation of the war and the German lust for world dominion was played up in the newspapers until the danger from Germany struck terror into the hearts of Americans. Harry Elmer Barnes, The Genesis of the World War Great Britain entered the World War with nothing that could even remotely be termed an official propaganda department. She finished the struggle with the best-developed and probably most effective organization devoted to propaganda of any of the belligerent nations. They revealed once and for all that official propaganda, dexterously handled and adequately financed, is one of the most potent instruments of modern warfare. James Dwayne Squires British Propaganda at Home and in the United States from 1914 to 1917 the British campaign to induce the United States to come to their assistance affected every phase of American life. It was propaganda in its broadest meaning. News, money, and political pressure each played its part, and the battle itself was fought not only in London, New York, and Washington, D.C., but also in American classrooms and pulpits, factories, and offices. It was a campaign to create a pro-British attitude of mind among Americans, to get American sympathies and interests so deeply involved in the European war that it would be impossible for this country to remain neutral. H.C. Peterson, Propaganda for War, The Campaign Against American Neutrality, 1914-1917 
The Great War was promoted from the beginning by the Allied powers as a holy crusade against the forces of evil. A principle vastly embroidered for its own population by the United States government when it went to war in April 1917. Stuart Halsey Ross, Propaganda for War, How the United States Was Conditioned to Fight the Great War of 1914-1918. to everybody. CJ here, hanging on by the skin of my teeth, admittedly, but hanging on nonetheless, as your renaissance man here in this new, dark, and ever-darkening age in which we seem to find ourselves. Finally, I am here with the first installment of my long-awaited, long-talked-about, long-researched series on World War I propaganda in the United States. And in this first installment, I'm going to be focusing on the gigantic British propaganda operation that was directed at the United States pretty much from the very outbreak of the war in the summer of 1914 until the United States officially entered the war in the spring of 1917. So for almost three years, the British state directed a gigantic propaganda operation at the United States of America, designed to pull it away from being neutral and staying out of World War I into coming in on the side of Britain and France against Germany. And while several actions taken by the German government in the early months of 1917 would be sort of like the final straws or excuses for Woodrow Wilson and the United States Congress to enter the war officially, after being kind of half-assed in it for quite a long time, indirectly. Nonetheless, I think it's pretty clear that the British propaganda operation, into which they devoted a lot of resources over, like I said, nearly three years, must have had a giant effect. Must have had a giant effect on gradually moving the needle and laying the groundwork so that when Wilson asked for and got a declaration of war against Germany in April 1917, a lot of the public had been gradually conditioned into believing that this was a war of good versus evil to save freedom and democracy, and that the Germans and their satanic Kaiser were absolute devils. That way, the American public wouldn't be as resistant. Now, some people still were, but they wouldn't be as resistant to all of the sacrifices and hardships that they would have to make in order to jump into what was the biggest war in human history up to that time.
place I want to start getting into this history of British propaganda in the U.S. during World War I for this episode is actually to drop the needle a little further back and talk about the ways in which, to a large extent, the groundwork was laid for the U.S. to eventually come in as an ally of Britain in World War I. And then again in World War II, of course. The groundwork was laid over the course of about two decades, in what historians of Anglo-American relations have come to call the Great Rapprochement. And I never know what that word, whether the T at the end is supposed to be silent or not, because it's French, and French is always goofy. But anyway, in the two decades leading up to the outbreak of World War I, the British elite had deliberately followed a strategy of cultivating as much as they could positive diplomatic relations, as well as kind of like social, cultural, economic, with France, Russia, and the U.S. And keep in mind, if you know much about modern history, that prior to the turn of the 20th century, all three of those countries, France, Russia, and the U.S., had been often rivals or even outright enemies of the British more often than not. By the way, the British during this period of the turn of the last century also were cultivating positive relations with the Japanese at the time as much as they could as well. And the British elite was doing this largely because they had decided by the 1890s that Germany was now the big boogeyman, and therefore they wanted to make friends with as many other powerful countries as they could in order to have as many other powerful governments on their side as possible against the Germans, and to be able to focus their own military and other resources mostly just against Germany and its allies, rather than having to divvy up their military resources to defend their extensive empire from a bunch of potential threats and rivals coming from, literally and figuratively, a bunch of different directions. So like I said, this change in the Anglo-American relationship from one, for most of America's history, from the Revolutionary War itself, right up through, you know, at least the 1880s, the relationship between the US and UK was more often than not characterized by rivalry and even outright hostility. And this change that happened right around the turn of the last century saw it morph into a relationship characterized much more by close alliance as well as by kind of sentimental affection and mutual favoritism to the point where, by World War II and the Cold War, people would talk about the U.S. and U.K. having a quote-unquote special relationship, being like way closer than normal even for allies. And this shift occurred basically starting in the 1890s and then unfolding into the early 19-teens. And like I said, this is known as the Great Rapprochement. I'll try to give it a nice, snooty, fake French accent. So, 
the last time prior to World War One that the United States government still kind of took a hard stance against the British as sort of a rival and even a potential threat or enemy was in 1895, when then U.S. President Grover Cleveland, somewhat uncharacteristically for him, he wasn't usually a particularly belligerent president in international affairs, but President Grover Cleveland talked pretty tough in 1895 to the British and even threatened potential war with them over a border dispute that was then happening between Venezuela and the place next door, which at the time was British Guiana in South America. And in this instance, the British elite basically decided to appease the Americans. And from then on, the British elite adopted this policy of really trying to make friends with the Americans, or at least with America's WASP elites, many of whom were already sentimentally Anglophiles and ideologically Anglo-Saxonists to one degree or another. So after that Venezuela border dispute in which the British essentially just, you know, caved to the American point of view, it started to pay dividends. Like, for example, the British were the only major European power that more or less sided, you know, not in a belligerent sense, but sided at least sentimentally and diplomatically with the U.S. during the Spanish-American War. They also largely went along with the U.S. building a canal through Panama, and they even sided with the U.S. over the Canadians in a dispute about where the Alaskan border exactly was. And for its part, the U.S. government remained more or less benevolently neutral towards the British Empire during the Boer War at the turn of the century. At the same time, the U.S. financial elites, of course, first and foremost the House of Morgan, but to varying degrees, most of the other major Wall Street financial firms, these firms and these people who ran them had always been, for the most part, pretty anglophilic. And many of them had long-standing personal business, political, and sometimes even family connections to a lot of the British political and financial elites. The only group in the U.S. that weren't already in their hearts and minds on the side of the British by the outbreak of World War I were a lot of regular Americans, probably a large majority of the middle and working classes, particularly those who were not of any sort of WASP heritage. And especially any middle or working class Americans who were of Irish or German extraction would not be on board with the Anglophilia of the American elites. And by the way, Irish Americans and German Americans were two of the largest white ethnic groups in the U.S. in the early 20th century. And both were, for obvious reasons, when World War I came along, particularly resistant to the idea of going to war to help the British defeat the Germans. So anyway, long story short, by the eve of World War I, the British already had much of the U.S. political and financial elites, at least somewhat on their side, in terms of overall sentiment and sympathy. But to get the U.S. to be willing to full-on jump into the biggest war in history in order to back the British up and ultimately be the factor that allowed them to win this war, they would need a major propaganda campaign in order to, one, try to win over as many working and middle-class Americans as possible to the British side of the war, and two, to try to pull as many of the American elites who were not already in the bag for Britain. And there were some, you know, the majority of American elites definitely were Anglophile, you know, well before World War I broke out, but there were still some elite Americans who were not in that boat. 
And so the other goal of the propaganda is try and pull as many of them along as possible into the pro-British, anti-German, pro-intervention camp. Okay, so let's talk about the outbreak of World War I. By the eve of World War I, Europe was divided into two hostile alliances, each led by some of the so-called great powers of the time. Now, the great powers as of 1914 were considered to be five states of Europe. Britain, France, Russia, Germany, and the Austrian, or as it was called by this time very often, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. These five great powers had sorted themselves into two alliances, the first known as the Triple Entente, led by France, Russia, and Britain, along with some other smaller countries who were allied to one or more of these three great powers, and then opposing this Triple Entente, you had the so-called Central Powers, which were led by Germany and Austria, and which then also had various smaller countries allied to or associated with them in various ways. So, the short version of the outbreak of World War I, if you don't already know it, or if you need a refresher because you haven't heard this since you were in grade school many years ago or something like that, is... That in late June of 1914, the then next in line to the Austrian throne, a man known as Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated by Serbian terrorists who were backed by the government of Serbia, which was a small country adjacent to Austria at the time. This assassination then led to about a month of diplomatic maneuvering and crisis over the course of July. Ultimately, the Austro-Hungarian government decided to respond to this assassination by going to full-fledged war against the nation of Serbia. Russia, who was an ally of Serbia, then began mobilizing against Austria, which triggered Germany to step in on the side of Austria against Russia, which then triggered France and Germany to begin to mobilize against each other because France and Russia were very closely allied, and the Germans knew this, and they knew that a war with one of the two, either France or Russia, would pretty much guarantee a war with both. By August 3rd, all of the great powers of Europe were at war with each other technically, and had been mobilizing against each other, except for the greatest of the great powers, namely the British, who, of course, at the time, still also had their vast global empire. But when Germany executed its war contingency plan, known as the Schlieffen Plan, for dealing with a war against both Russia and France, they then gave the British elite, who actually had been looking for a reason to go to war against Germany for years, they gave the British elite their excuse. Now, this was never the real reason. This was just the excuse, the cover story, the alibi for the British government to go to war against Germany. And that excuse came in the form of the German invasion of Belgium as their main invasion route into northern France. The One of the details of the Schlieffen Plan had been that, well, 
I'll just give you the overall bird's eye view of the Schlieffen plan. So it's an attempt on Germany's part to deal with this very tough strategic situation of having a hostile great power on either flank. So they've got France to the west and Russia to the east, and Germany probably believed they could take either of them pretty handily in a one-on-one, but they knew that France and Russia had become close allies, and that therefore Germany fighting one of them probably meant Germany fighting both of them simultaneously. And fighting a two-front war against two hostile great powers is not a good situation to be in. So the Schlieffen Plan was an attempt to deal with this strategic dilemma, and the Schlieffen Plan said that in the event of Germany going to war against both France and Russia, Germany should mobilize most of its military west initially to hit France as hard and fast as possible, try and get a repeat of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and hopefully knock France out within a matter of months. The reason for this was because while France was a smaller nation and could field only a smaller army than Russia could, Russia's much bigger and can field a much larger army, the Germans believed that because Russia was much less advanced and developed than France, they'd be a lot slower to really mobilize a lot of their army. And so the idea is concentrate first on France and leave only a relatively small contingent of German forces in the east to play defense against any Russian forces that mobilized, you know, fairly early. And then, again, the detail of the Schlieffen Plan that gave the British elite their excuse to go to war against Germany, and that also ultimately ended up being the basis for a lot of anti-German propaganda cranked out throughout the war, is that the Schlieffen Plan said that the main German invasion into France should not go directly across the Franco-German border, which they knew was very heavily defended, but instead should cut through Belgium, which was a small neutral country, and that therefore France's border with Belgium was not heavily defended, it would be a softer target. So the British elite, they were in kind of a political pickle as the war was starting to unfold. They wanted to go to war against Germany and had for years for various reasons. And by the way, when I say the British elite, I don't even mean the British Parliament. I mean the handful of guys that were really running the British Parliament and British state at the end of the day. So most members of Parliament weren't really in on this, to say nothing of the British public, who were mostly clueless about this. So as the various powers are starting to mobilize against each other in June 1914, the British elite wanted to go to war against Germany. They had even secretly promised France that they would, but they had the problem that Germany hadn't declared war against the UK, they hadn't attacked any British territories or assets or whatever, so they don't have a good casus belli. But then, when the German army invades into Belgium, the British elite seize upon that as their casus belli, and they basically um, dredged up an old treaty from many decades ago that said that uh, the British government would help to protect Belgium if their neutrality was violated. Now, the real reason the British elite wanted to go to war against Germany is they didn't like that the Germans were competing with them with increasing effectiveness in realms like industrial exports and overseas colonization and naval power. Now, to be fair, the only one of those three things in which the Germans were really like at parity with the British and maybe even overtaking them in some regards, was in industrial capability. The Germans were still way behind the British in overseas colonies and in naval power, but the British were overreacting, basically out of paranoia that anyone would even try to challenge them at all in those arenas. 
So when the German army went into Belgium, the British government issued an ultimatum to the German government saying that if they didn't cease and desist from their invasion of Belgium by 11 p.m. UK time on August 4th, the UK would be at a state of war with Germany. And the way things were organized at that time, it also meant that the entire British Empire was in with them. Now, of course, the Germans did not cease and desist, so as of 11 p.m. August 4th, all five of the great powers of Europe were at a state of war with each other in various ways, and as historian Neil Ferguson correctly points out, it was really the British entry into this war, which again at the time meant that all of their empire would be in it too, that made it truly a world war rather than just a major European war. British information warfare of World War I began pretty much simultaneously with British entry into the war. Very significantly and very tellingly, I think, the very first actual action of war that the British government executed against Germany was a major propaganda coup that would continue to pay dividends over the next three years. So, in the very early morning hours of August 5th, their first official day at war, the British destroyed the German transatlantic telegraph cables that connected Germany directly to North America. This was technically Britain's very first offensive operation of the entire war. And again, I just feel like I have to stress and reiterate, it is extremely significant that their very first offensive move of the war was to strike a major blow in the information war. So the British, as longtime global empire builders, understood very well, I think more than any other state at the time, that controlling information was extremely powerful. And in the early 20th century, Britain had by far more undersea telegraph cables than any other world power, and they used these to tie their empire together with what was then the best long-distance, high-speed communication technology available. A French commentator in 1900 said, quote, England owes the influence in the world perhaps more to her cable communications than to her navy. She controls the news and makes it serve her policy and commerce in a marvelous manner. End quote. The British ship that destroyed the German telegraph cables was called the Telconia, and it was a specialized ship designed and built specifically for the purpose of laying, maintaining, and repairing undersea telegraph cables. The Telconia wasn't officially a Royal Navy vessel. It was owned by a company called the Telegraph Construction and Maintenance Company Limited. And this is a classic illustration, by the way, of how the British Empire often operated through what in our times is euphemistically referred to as public-private partnerships, or, you know, what you might term corporate fascist imperialism, if you want to be non-euphemistic about it. Now, this mission to destroy the German cables in the event of war was not some spur-of-the-moment inspired idea. It had actually been meticulously planned for two years, 
And all of the necessary reconnaissance had been done beforehand, too, because the Telconia's captain and crew knew exactly where the German cables were, and they didn't have to waste time looking for them. They were able to quickly and efficiently knock them out. And once the Telconia took out the German telegraph cables, Germany then only had one cable left that could reach the Western Hemisphere. And that was a cable that went from Liberia in Africa all the way over to Brazil. A cable that, by the way, was co-owned with the United States. And within a year, the British destroyed that one too. And despite the fact that that cable was partially U.S.-owned, I'm not aware of any significant negative diplomatic fallout to the British coming from the U.S. over this. So, in the first couple decades of the 20th century, even though telephones existed and were becoming more and more widespread in use, there still wasn't long-distance telephone service, especially across oceans. So, the telegraph was still the best way to communicate quickly over long distances, especially across the water, for everything from sending news stories to transmitting messages between governments. So, the British destruction of the German telegraph cables meant that neither the German government nor journalists in Germany, be they American, German, or otherwise, could communicate directly from there to America. And the British, of course, never allowed the German telegraph cables to be repaired for the entire duration of the war. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy and telegraph ships like the Delconia made sure that Britain's transatlantic cables that connected to America remained fully intact and operational. All of this meant that literally from Britain's very first day in World War I, they totally dominated the narrative about the war that Americans received. They really had hegemony over the message. And this is an example of what I and others sometimes call negative propaganda, by which I mean minimizing the narratives that oppose or counter whatever narrative you as a propagandist are trying to get into people's brains. So by eliminating or at least minimizing any competing narratives and inconvenient facts or malinformation, as the government today would call it, you are then maximizing the impact of your own narrative. And that process of creating and disseminating your narrative through various medias into people's brains is what I would call positive propaganda. And if you're skillful in cranking out a lot of effective, positive propaganda that carries your message while simultaneously minimizing any opposing propaganda, you can make yourself basically a narrative hegemon. By the way, the New York Times actually reported on the destruction of the German telegraph cables the very next day, and they pointed out, rightly, that this meant that all information coming out of Germany would be filtered through Germany's enemies. The article also quoted an Austrian diplomat saying, quote, I cannot tell you how much I regret the cutting of the cable. The cutting of that cable may do us great injury. If only one side of the case is given, as may happen, if only the English cable is left, prejudice against us will be created here, end quote, meaning in America. Then on only their fourth day at war, the British Parliament passed the Defense of the Realm Act of 1914. 
This act gave the British state all kinds of authoritarian powers to wage the war, including vast censorship powers, and it included the banning and regulating of all sorts of seemingly minor, innocent activities. So, according to Wikipedia's page on this act, among the new regulations were such things as the banning of, quote, flying kites, starting bonfires, buying binoculars, feeding wild animals bread, discussing naval and military matters, or buying alcohol on public transport. Alcoholic drinks were watered down in pub opening times, were restricted to 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., end quote. Also under this law, many anti-war activists and critics of the war would be imprisoned, with Bertrand Russell probably being the most prominent among them, who were jailed over the course of the war. Now, the Defense of the Realm Act of 1914 also meant that foreign journalists in the UK, or who were going to try to transmit stories back to America using British telegraph cables, were also subject to draconian censorship, which meant that only news that reflected positively on the Allied side as the Entente came to be known once the war was on, and that reflected negatively on the Central Power side, only that kind of information and news would be allowed to reach the American public. Author Stuart Halsey Ross has some very keen analysis of what all of this meant in terms of the drastic imbalance between Britain and Germany in terms of both the amount and the effectiveness of the propaganda that would reach the United States during the years of alleged American neutrality in World War I. Quote, The near absolute control of the news by the British and thus indirect control of America's press had a vital corollary, for through this monopoly, their propaganda could be effectively anonymous. Unlike the Germans, who had to publish new magazines and set up a news information agency and who tried to buy existing American papers, the British quietly worked their influence through existing American media. Only the Germans, Americans came to believe, were trying to subvert U.S. public opinion. As early as February 2nd, 1915, the influential New York World editorially commented on what was gradually becoming an act of faith in the United States. And then he quotes the New York World, quote, Germany is the only country engaged in this war which has officially undertaken to manipulate American opinion. It is the only belligerent which maintains a lobby in the United States to incite public sentiment against other belligerents with which we are friendly, end quote from both Ross and the newspaper from which he's quoting. So, to me... This is an extremely important point. One thing that I always say on the topic of propaganda is that the most effective propaganda is always going to be that which does not appear to even be propaganda in the eyes of most people on the receiving end of it. And in this war, the British did an absolutely masterful job of making it look to the American public as if they, the British government and their operatives, weren't really doing any propaganda at all. While the German government's propaganda efforts appeared much more obviously to be propaganda and to be coming from the German government in the eyes of the American public. So the British agents who carried out 
way more extensive propaganda ops in the U.S. than the Germans ever could have even dreamed of. They were doing it essentially as secret agents. And very often they were, in one way or another, actually working through American individuals and organizations and companies in the process. Sometimes these American people and institutions were ignorant that they were basically being used as fronts or conduits or mouthpieces for British state propaganda. But in some cases, I think they clearly knew what was up. But in either case, whether they were knowing or unknowing collaborators in the British propaganda efforts, the point is the average American consumer of news had no idea that almost all of the quote-unquote information and news they were getting about anything related to the war was basically 100% pure allied and primarily British propaganda. Instead, the view of the American public was that only sinister, scary Germany was trying to insidiously influence American minds about the war, when the reality was nearly the opposite. The British were propagandizing the American public infinitely more than the Germans ever did or could or could have even dreamed about, but they were doing it far more skillfully, and part of that is they're doing it in a way that's harder for people to spot. And by the way, I may mention this again later on in this episode, which will probably end up being pretty long by the time I'm done with it. But there's also a difference in propaganda goals in regard to Britain and Germany vis-a-vis the United States. And again, even though the American public was generally led to believe that the Germans were far more, you know, scheming and sinister and nefarious and whatever. The propaganda goal of the British government was actually in a way more sinister because the British propaganda efforts aimed at the United States were designed to pull the United States into the war on the side of the British against the Germans. Whereas the goal of the German propaganda efforts, as ham-fisted as they were, was much less sinister. The goal of the German propaganda efforts in the United States were basically just to try to keep America neutral. They weren't trying in any significant way to pull America into the war on the side of Germany. I think the German propaganda operatives of World War I were intelligent enough to realize that was, you know, an undoable goal. But think about like, which is the more sinister in regards to exploiting the United States and its people? The British, who are trying to get America to actively come into the biggest war in human history? Or the Germans, who are just trying to persuade America to stay neutral and stay out of it? Which one, if they got their way, is going to do more harm to America in the world, I would ask you? So now I want to give kind of a sketch and some examples 
to illustrate the overall British state's World War I propaganda operations, especially in regard to the U.S. And I'm going to talk about the main kind of institutions and organization and some of the key personnel and a few examples of particularly effective pieces of propaganda. The main British state agency during World War I that dealt with propaganda was officially called the War Propaganda Bureau. Its headquarters was in a building called Wellington House in London. So from now on in this podcast episode, if I say Wellington House, I mean really the British War Propaganda Bureau. But just in the same way that people will often refer to the British Prime Minister and his government by referring to Downing Street or refer to a U.S. presidential administration by saying the White House, very often sources will refer to the British propaganda operation by the term Wellington House. So the War Propaganda Bureau was set up by the British cabinet in early September 1914, not long into the war. The overall head of Wellington House was Charles F.G. Masterman, who was a member of Parliament and also head of the National Insurance Commission. And in fact, Wellington House was the headquarters of the National Insurance Commission before the war started. And Masterman was also a close friend of then-Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. Masterman had been a journalist before he got into politics, so he has very relevant knowledge, skills, and experience to running a propaganda bureau. And Asquith gave Masterman a virtual blank check to run the propaganda bureau as he saw fit, with very little real oversight. Historian M.L. Sanders in a journal article titled Wellington House and British Propaganda During the First World War, which was published in the March 1975 issue of the Historical Journal, writes, quote, For the next two years, Wellington House was the main center of British propaganda organization, working very effectively but in such secrecy that even Parliament was largely ignorant of its existence, end quote. So, if even most members of the British Parliament didn't know that this bureau existed, how many Americans do you think were aware of its existence from 1914 to 1917, let alone aware that it was operating on a huge scale in the United States? So, once established, the Wellington House Propaganda Bureau quickly set up branches that were organized by language and which were directed at neutral countries aside from the stuff they were doing, you know, directed at a domestic population. And of course, when it came to targeting neutral countries and their political opinion, the United States, for many obvious reasons, was considered by far the most important neutral country to propagandize. In order to deal with propagandizing the U.S., they set up what in their own words they referred to as, in official documents, quote, a most important special branch. End quote. M. L. Sanders writes, quote, A pattern of work was laid down for each of the national sections. First, each had to study the foreign press and keep in touch with the trend of public opinion in the country with which it was dealing. Secondly, each section was to translate and publish any matter likely to have a favorable effect on that opinion by arranging for something to be written or by using material already available or by circulating speeches and official documents. 
Thirdly, each was to deal directly with individuals, sending them information or receiving reports from them, or particularly in the case of the USA, encouraging press correspondents in England and any distinguished visitors to the country to quote-unquote take a right view of the action of the British government since the commencement of the war. At intervals, special representatives were sent to various countries abroad to report on the condition of public opinion and to recommend methods of allaying dissatisfaction with or opposition to British policy. Any recipients of official British propaganda were to receive it through unofficial sources. End quote. That is a key point. Again, I'll repeat that. Any recipients of official British propaganda were to receive it through unofficial sources. That's key. Back to Sanders, quote, It was a general policy that a definite nexus should exist between sender and recipient, thus avoiding any impersonal or wholesale distribution. Anything which resembled the German methods of a mass publicity campaign was to be avoided, end quote. So, I'll probably briefly towards the end of this episode mention a little bit about the German propaganda operations in the U.S. from 1914 to 1917, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I'm mainly going to just, you know, probably sketch a little bit about them to give you an idea in order to contrast it with what the British did. But basically, the Germans really didn't do much of anything most of the time to camouflage their propaganda. And as such, it was often obvious, awkward, clunky, and easily detected. Whereas the Brits were much more skillful at propaganda, and very, very cognizant of the need to camouflage that propaganda. Early on, Masterman held a conference on war propaganda strategies, whose attendees included such famous and respected British authors as H.G. Wells, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Thomas Hardy, and G.K. Chesterton, to name just a few. And they brainstormed about how best to propagandize various countries, including, first and foremost, the United States. Now, the head of the British Propaganda Operations Department that was directed at the United States from very soon after the outbreak of war until just before the U.S. officially entered it in 1917 would be a man named Sir Gilbert Parker. Parker was born in Ontario, Canada in 1862. By the way, just as a side note, in World War II, very similarly, some of the main British propagandists that worked in the U.S. before Pearl Harbor were also Canadian, such as, most famously and importantly, the Anglo-Canadian spy William Stevenson, known by the codename Intrepid. Just an interesting side note to the side note, one of Stevenson's right-hand men was none other than Ian Fleming, who would later go on to create James Bond and write the James Bond novels. And supposedly, the character of M, James Bond's boss, who originally was actually a guy before the gender-swapping thing became the fad, originally, supposedly, M as a character was based in large part on William Stevenson. Anyway, back to Gilbert Parker in World War I. As a young man, Parker had briefly been a teacher at the Ontario Institute for the Deaf and Dumb, and then went on to be a lecturer at the University of Toronto for a few years, after which, in 1886, he moved to Australia, where he worked for a while for the Sydney Morning Herald. 
He also traveled extensively elsewhere during this time period. In the late 19th and early 20th century, he became a successful novelist with a fairly large following in the UK. In 1895, he married a wealthy heiress from New York City named Amy Van Tyne. Parker then traveled extensively in the U.S. during this time period. And sometime between 1895 and 1900, I'm not exactly sure when, he moved to the U.K. and was elected in 1900 as a conservative member of the British Parliament, a position he would hold until 1918. In 1902, he was knighted by King Edward VII at Buckingham Palace for his literary achievements. During the war years, he would be made a baronet and a privy councillor. And if you know anything about how exclusive the British elite tend to be when you get to that level, then you'll know that all of this is very impressive for a Canadian-born novelist of all things. Because of his background, he was ideal to head the British propaganda operations directed at the U.S., because he was simultaneously a passionate British imperialist who had lived in multiple parts of the British Empire, as well as a man with experience and skill as both a novelist and a journalist, and a guy with a lot of insight into the U.S., having been married to an American and having lived and traveled in the United States quite a bit. Stuart Halsey Ross, in his book Propaganda for War, writes, quote, no sooner had war broken out than the American section of Britain's propaganda machine, now headed by Sir Gilbert Parker, went into full swing. Parker's group, which grew rapidly to over 50 publicity specialists, had a straightforward goal. To help drag America into the war on the side of the Allies. When lies were called for, Parker lied glibly. And when atrocities were found to play well in the press, Parker created enormous German barbarities. Most important, Parker and his team at Wellington House went about their propaganda work quietly. So discreetly, in fact, that few in America, and until near the end of the war, only a handful even in Parliament, knew that the British government had a formal propaganda apparatus trained on the U.S., end quote. Stuart Halsey Ross then sums up Parker's overall propaganda strategy for the U.S. as follows, quote, Parker's fundamental objective was to bring America into the war on the side of the Allies. He would do this by tying America and Britain into a common cause, the defeat of a dangerous, aggressive imperial Germany. A first step was to point the finger of guilt at Germany and Austria-Hungary for starting the war. Another strategic propaganda building block was the bold lie of German expansionism in the Americas. The British had recent first-hand experience of how violently America reacted to prospective violations of its hallowed Monroe Doctrine. A surefire ploy to gain America's active support was to stress that Germany would certainly cross the Atlantic if it won the war in Europe, an argument used effectively by the British again in their successful propaganda efforts early in World War II. End quote. We've got to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Right? We've all heard this kind of crap. This is a very powerful propaganda tool to get Americans to want to go fight an alleged bad regime on the other side of the planet. This method, it's basically to drastically exaggerate the enemy regime's intentions and capabilities. 
The idea that Germany at the start of World War I had realistic plans to try to take over territories in the Western Hemisphere, and that they had the capabilities to do so even if they wanted to, was ridiculous, especially once the war got going. And this is true in regard to both World War I and World War II. In both cases, Germany was so tied up fighting enemies in Europe that the idea that they were also going to start taking over big chunks of Latin America is just ridiculous. But in both cases, World War I and World War II, this narrative was used by British propagandists as well as by their allies, pro-intervention Americans, to make regular Americans feel much less safe than they really in fact were from foreign aggression in order to make them feel like a conflict that's happening on the other side of the planet is absolutely America's problem and a major threat to America, and it's America's business, and it's a clear and present threat to the safety and freedom of the American people. This is how you get a Kansas farm boy to potentially believe that a war going on between Britain and France and Germany in Northern Europe is something that a Kansas farm boy ought to really be worried about. By the way, current event side note, this exact same argument is currently being rehashed by pro-escalation voices in America in regard to the war in Ukraine. I've literally seen some American politicians and media figures saying pretty much word for word that we need to fight the Russians in Ukraine so we don't have to fight them here in America. Which is absolutely delusional fantasy when you look at actual logistical capabilities. Even setting aside the question of whether Putin would ever even want to try to invade the U.S., which I don't think there's any evidence to support whatsoever. But even if he did have that desire in his heart. If you want to cure yourself of these ridiculous propaganda narratives that over-exaggerate drastically both the intent and the capabilities of alleged bad guys, all you got to do is look up actual nuts and bolts statistics. It's amazing how often looking up real hard data obliterates hysterical propaganda narratives, and not just in regard to wars, but in regard to a lot of other things as well that people are terrified of. So, if you look at things like... Russia's overall population, its GDP, its military budget, its naval capacity, and so forth, it's really obvious that there's absolutely no way that a conventional Russian attack or invasion in the Western Hemisphere would be at all feasible, and if tried, would have even the slightest prayer of any sort of success. But then again, keep in mind that in the run-up to the Spanish-American War in the 1890s, some of the Warhawks at the time were warning that Spain might attack or even invade the American mainland. Spain, which at the time was a decrepit, long-since-has-been empire that was several centuries past its prime, that had an antique navy. They were going to try and reconquista Florida or something else, right? I mean, it's just absolutely insane. But some people believed it. Anyway, back to Ross, quote, Americans would also have to be convinced that there could be no negotiated peace with Germany, short of total Allied victory, and that England, France, and Russia were, in fact, fighting America's war, end quote. Gee whiz, how relevant does that sound to recent and current events? Back to Ross, quote, once the United States was actively a belligerent, the nation's public opinion would be directed to accept nothing less than unconditional surrender. 
And as the propaganda tempo built up, propaganda based on a semblance of reasoning gave way to propaganda of fear and hatred. German soldiers and sailors were accused of committing literally unspeakable crimes, and atrocity propaganda soon became the linchpin of Wellington House's overall efforts, end quote. Parker put a lot of effort and resources into what was essentially market research to try to get as accurate of an understanding of the minds of the American public as he could so that he would know how best to tailor his propaganda for maximum effectiveness. And he continued to do this throughout the war to try to measure how effective various propaganda methods and campaigns were or weren't. He even commissioned a secret weekly newsletter called The American Press Regime, run by an employee named Kenneth Durant out of Washington, D.C., which would report to Wellington House on the state of American opinion as best as could be ascertained, often by sampling American newspaper editorials as sort of a barometer. Because, of course, methods to try to accurately measure public opinion in quantitative terms, such as Gallup polling, etc., hadn't been fully invented yet. Now, two of the most important British operatives working inside the United States between 1914 and 1917 were Arthur Willert, who was the London Times' main man in Washington, D.C., and Sir William Wiseman. Wiseman was officially a British purchasing agent in the U.S. at the time. Though simultaneously and unknown to most people, he was also the top-ranking British military intelligence operative in the U.S. Wiseman would become very close to Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was, of course, Wilson's top foreign policy advisor at the time and for most of Wilson's presidency, and of course a very close personal friend of the president as well. And in August of 1918, Wiseman even spent a week on vacation with both House and Wilson. By the way, Wiseman was also a mentor to William Stevenson, whom I mentioned earlier in regard to World War II, the guy that served as the inspiration for the James Bond character of M. Stuart Halsey Ross writes of Sir William Wiseman that, quote, no other foreigner had a more important and long-lasting influence on America's foreign policy during the war and immediately after, end quote. After the war, by the way, Wiseman worked for a while at the major U.S. financial firm of Kuhn Loeb & Company. By the way, just as a side note, if you hear anything going on in the background, I have to reiterate yet again that one of the few things I don't like about the house that I moved into right around the end of 2021 is that it is terribly not soundproof. And so my home office studio is vulnerable to noise both from within the house and from outside. And I invested a bunch of money and time into soundproofing it as best I could, but there's only so much you can do without being willing and able to spend an absolute fortune. So yeah. And on top of that, to make matters worse, currently not one, but two houses are being constructed literally across the street from me. And also, you know, anytime any of my neighbors does yard work or has a lawn company doing yard work for them, that comes through, you know, and yeah, I've done things to mitigate it, but it's not 100%. And also, just as a side note, I'll say, I've got one next door neighbor on one side 
who is apparently an absolute OCD addict to doing yard work. It's like literally what he does all day long, almost every day. He does just hours and hours of yard work, and I don't even know what the hell he's doing, honestly, because his yard always looks like, you know, totally immaculate, and yet every single day he's out there for hours, you know, running equipment and whatever. He seems to have a particular love for the leaf blower. Almost every day he does a leaf blower concerto that can last sometimes an hour or more. And I don't know, you know, what exactly this, this guy's uh, mental issues are, but, uh, man, he is absolutely addicted to doing yard work and especially that damn leaf blower. So anyway, if you hear weird little background noises occasionally, not just in this episode, but, you know, because I do otherwise in most regards really like this house and I hate moving, I plan on staying here for probably at least another decade or two. So, you know, just from now on, anytime you hear background noise in a DHP episode, please just ignore it. Anyway, British propaganda in World War I was very slick by the standards of the early 20th century. It was also extremely disciplined in the sense of always staying on message, in terms of consistently sticking to the same narrative and hitting the same sorts of themes and talking points so that it would have maximum impact through repetition and consistency. Charles Beard, a leading early 20th century U.S. historian and an opponent of U.S. participation in World War I, in his book, The Rise of American Civilization, which he first published in 1927, described the Allied propaganda, especially the British propaganda, aimed at the U.S. in the early years of World War I as follows, quote, In their work of, quote-unquote, educating the United States— the Entente propagandists soon discovered that the American people were more easily moved by stories of atrocities than by the folios of red, white, and yellow books packed with carefully selected diplomatic documents issued by the belligerents in their own defense. With a view to perfecting the technique of Entente propaganda, a complete official thesis was evolved for the guidance of those who needed a creed to support their emotions. It ran in the following form. Germany and Austria, under autocratic warlords, had long been plotting and preparing for the day when they could overwhelm their neighbors and make themselves masters of the world. England, France, and Russia, on the other hand, all unsuspecting, had pursued ways of innocence, had sincerely desired peace, and made no adequate preparations for a great cataclysm. To further their ends, the story for babes continued, the Germans had hacked their way through Belgium, a small and helpless country whose neutrality had been guaranteed by all the powers in their fond desire to safeguard the rights of little countries. And in cutting their way through this defenseless kingdom, the Germans had committed shocking deeds, crimes against humanity, offenses not justifiable in the name of war, horrors not usually incident to armed conflicts. To crown their infamy, so ran the Entente Articles of Faith, the Germans did what no other Christian people would do, namely, employ the submarine, a new instrument of warfare, sending cargo crew and passengers alike to the bottom of the sea. Embellished in many details, embroidered with rumors and ghastly stories, this Entente War Creed was pressed upon the people of the United States with such reiteration and zeal that in wide and powerful circles it became as fixed as the law of the Medes and Persians. 
to question any part of it in those spheres was to set oneself down as a boor and a hun, and after 1917, as a traitor to America besides. End quote. Up to mighty London came an Irish man one day, as the streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay. Singing songs of Piccadilly and Leicester Square, till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to them there, it's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye. It's a long, long way to Tipperary, but my heart right there. Now, I want to mention a little bit here about some of the specific methods, as well as some other noteworthy contributors to the British propaganda operations in the U.S. So, during World War I, Print journalism was still by far the number one source of news and information for Americans, as well as for most people in the world. Broadcast radio didn't really start in the U.S. until the 1920s, and of course things like TV, let alone the internet, were still, you know, far in the future. In the early 20th century, around the time period of World War I, the United States had almost 20,000 daily and weekly newspapers. Newspapers were usually very inexpensive, in large part, because the papers were getting the bulk of their revenue from advertisements. So, they could sell the papers to readers quite cheaply. Many cost only a penny to purchase. This, combined with the relatively high literacy rate in the U.S., constituted, in the words of Stuart Halsey Ross, quote, an almost unnoticed communications revolution, end quote. It also, as Ross correctly points out, meant that newspapers could be an extremely powerful tool to manipulate public opinion in the U.S., in other words, for propaganda purposes. It's well known, for example, that the newspapers had already been a major factor, probably by far overwhelmingly the single most important factor, in creating public support amongst American citizens for going to war against Spain in the 1890s. This is not something that average Americans came up with on their own. It's not like average middle and working class Americans in the 1890s were all of a sudden spontaneously going, we should go to war against Spain. No, it came as a top-down campaign in part from certain politicians, and perhaps even more so in terms of influencing average people's thoughts from the press. Now, though there were thousands, literally a couple tens of thousands, of newspapers in the United States at the time, in many ways, there still was, as today, hegemony where a relatively small number of very powerful and dominant outlets could exercise a massive amount of influence and even indirect control over smaller outlets. So, the relatively small number of big city newspapers in the U.S., were able to have dominant influence over the papers of smaller towns. And in fact, 
two press associations, the Associated Press and United Press International, between them, dominated a lot of the print journalism throughout much of the country. And as it is today, rightly or wrongly, in my opinion mostly wrongly, the New York Times was already by far the most influential and typically was basically the voice of the establishment, speaking as the burning bush on Mount Sinai. And just like now, the New York Times was anything but an objective source of unbiased information, though it liked to masquerade and portray itself as just that. Other major New York City papers of the era, like Joseph Pulitzer's New York World or Horace Greeley's New York Tribune, were also very influential. Unsurprisingly, given all of that, journalists would dominate the ranks of war propagandists all around, both officially admitted propagandists who actually ran government propaganda bureaus, as well as unofficial propagandists, journalists who were still pretending and acting as independent newsmen, but who also, in some fashion, directly or indirectly, knowingly or unknowingly, worked for the British prior to the U.S. entry into World War I. Harold Laswell, in his classic analysis of World War I propaganda, titled Propaganda Technique in the World War, which was first published in 1927, sums up the importance of journalists in propaganda operations in World War I as follows, quote, There is no doubt about the superlative qualifications of newspaper men for propaganda work. The star in the propaganda firmament during the World War were mostly journalists, and the journalists who delivered the goods were not primarily the editorial writers. They were men whose primary business was reporting or editing the news. Newspaper men wean their daily bread by telling their tales in terse, vivid style. They know how to get over to the average man in the street and to exploit his vocabulary, prejudices, and enthusiasms. They have a feeling for words and moods, and they know that the public is not convinced by logic, but seduced by stories, end quote. In other words, narrative and emotion are way more important than logic, evidence, etc. Now, in addition to journalists, the British propaganda operation would frequently make use of famous literary authors as well as notable and respected academics and intellectuals, both British and American. In other words, people who already had a following and a reputation as a respected authority in a topic like literature or history or philosophy, for example. And they would use these figures' pre-existing following and notoriety and trustworthiness and expert status. They would leverage that on behalf of their war propaganda efforts quite effectively. Parker and his employees generally preferred to try to work through Americans, both individuals as well as media companies and other institutions, as much as possible in order to prevent the American public from seeing British state propaganda in the U.S. for what it was. Because, as I always say, the best propaganda, the most effective propaganda, is always going to be that which most people do not realize is propaganda. And this is especially true when you're talking about 
propaganda that's coming into a country from a foreign government, ultimately. This is an actual instance of what Nina Jankowicz referred to in her deranged Mary Poppins song as information laundering. And by the way, if you actually listen to the words of that stupid song and don't get distracted by the ridiculousness of it, she's basically explaining to you how she and people like her operate. It's very interesting. Like, if you look into what we now know about where the Russiagate disinformation operation came from, it's literally the same process she describes in her Mary Poppins disinformation laundering stupid little song. So anyway, getting back to Parker in World War One, you can see Parker's methods as being sort of like a virus or maybe a parasite in that he's using a host for his own benefit and doing so in a deceptive way in which the host may not even have a clue as to what's going on. M.L. Sanders, in the article that I already referred to a few times earlier, puts it like this, quote, Where possible, foreign correspondents should be encouraged to write their own articles based on the information supplied, end quote. By which, of course, he means information supplied to, in this case, American news outlets by Wellington House. Sanders follows this by saying, quote, This was particularly true of the Americans who, it was felt, would resent any attempt to direct what they should say, end quote. And here he's talking about American journalists. Back to Sanders, quote, Having cut the cables carrying the German communications to America, Britain monopolized the information that was sent, so American correspondents had to come to England. Their case was special, as American neutrality and eventual support was valued above all else where Allied and neutral propaganda was concerned. Thus, Wellington House and Sir Gilbert Parker took specific responsibility for dealing with the vast number of American newspapers. Parker supplied 512 newspapers, 320 of them local journals, with the varied propaganda literature that he received. In Britain, the Neutral Press Committee, in liaison with the Foreign Office, provided facilities for foreign correspondents, including a regular news supply and special interviews with leading figures in the government or in services. By 1916, GHQ permitted the attachment of a permanent American correspondent at the front, and this privilege was soon extended to other neutral and allied countries. End quote. First off, in case you don't know, GHQ, as it was called during World War I, is what in our times is usually referred to as GCHQ, which is basically the UK's equivalent of the US's NSA. Though obviously, of course, the UK one is much older, like pretty much all UK intelligence agencies in comparison to their American equivalents. And by the way, in many cases, those American equivalents were deliberately modeled on their British precursors. And in at least some cases that I'm aware of, and probably more that I'm not, such as, for example, in terms of cases I'm aware of, the creation of the American OSS in World War II, British intelligence officers actually consulted with the U.S. government on the design and establishment of intelligence agencies. So anyway, GHQ, as it was known back in World War I, is in charge of so-called signals intelligence. 
and it makes sense that they would have a major role in international propaganda. Even if, or perhaps especially if, that propaganda was designed to be indirect and concealed as much as possible. Again, notice how savvy these British operators were all the way back more than a hundred years ago. They already understood the counterintuitive insight that they would actually be more effective at propagandizing American opinion by taking an indirect approach that masked their role, in stark contrast to the Germans, who generally did not grasp this insight. And so as a result, the Germans carried out mostly what were obvious, kind of ham-fisted, on-the-nose, blatant operations aimed at influencing U.S. opinion. Along this line, notice, too, how the British state is gaining influence, verging on virtual control of news outlets in neutral countries like the United States, not by blatantly appearing to be censoring and planting stories and all those sorts of things, but rather under the guise of helping foreign journalists, of facilitating them, right? They appear to be trying to facilitate and assist the access of American and other foreign journalists to news and information. But in reality, they're using all of that as a means to control, although stealthily, but ultimately to control the narrative that those foreign news outlets are going to then disseminate to their consumers. This, of course, is very similar to the relationship of the U.S. government to most major U.S. media outlets in our own time. The government generally appears superficially to be, quote-unquote, helping journalists by granting them access and providing them with information and things like that. But in reality, the government is doing it very strategically and selectively so that they can use this, you know, oh, we're here to help the journalists and give them information. They can use that to then control the major media outlets and to control what information and what narratives are then in turn shared with the general public. By the way, the fact that the British elites grasped this counterintuitive insight makes a lot of sense to me. Because if you don't know, if you've never heard an episode where I've mentioned it of this podcast, the British Empire was actually my primary field of study back when I was in graduate school like 16 years ago. And one of the many things that I learned about the British Empire was that like all empires in history that last for a long amount of time, it went through several different phases in which it operated in kind of different ways and in different places. And I learned that in the late 19th and early 20th century, the attitude and approach of most of the men who were running the British Empire is best explained by the phrase, indirect rule whenever possible, direct rule when necessary meaning that after the fallout of the American Revolution and a few other important events in the early to mid-19th century, the British elite, the guys really running the British Empire, realized that in many instances, you could run an empire much more cheaply and efficiently and effectively by doing so as much as possible through what's known as indirect rule or informal imperialism, in which you try not to formally annex too many territories as part of the British Empire. I mean, you do that some for sure, but instead, you try to take over a territory through economic, political, and military power, 
while leaving some sort of local sock puppet nominally in charge of things, you know, that sort of approach, much more indirect. This, by the way, has been primarily how the U.S. Empire has operated ever since World War II. Indirect rule when possible, direct rule when necessary. In other words, operate through intermediaries and sock puppets as much as possible because that tends to keep costs down and it tends to conceal from most people around the world how much you're really in charge and controlling things. And I think that overall approach to running an empire is very analogous to the Brits' propaganda approach to the U.S. during World War I. Keep it indirect whenever possible. Furthermore, M.L. Sanders writes, quote, The sensitivity of British propagandists, where the foreign press were concerned, meant that they normally avoided subsidizing or gaining control of a foreign newspaper. End quote. Again, this is in strong contrast to the German propaganda operations in the U.S., where the German state might blatantly and directly buy or subsidize or even set up their own media operations in a way that was really obvious and off-putting to many Americans. So long story short, Wellington House propagandists and those working for other parts of the British state who were charged with trying to influence foreign opinion, they always tried to launder their propaganda through existing fronts inside the country being targeted whenever they could. And another thing in this sort of vein of doing propaganda indirectly as much as possible, the British government also used the British-based global news agency Reuters, which is nominally private and which already had an existing global network of telegraph communications and correspondence. The British government frequently used Reuters as well to launder their propaganda en route to other countries. While people knew that Reuters was ultimately a UK-based company, they no doubt, you know, saw it as private and therefore theoretically as being independent in terms of being a news outlet, which whether or not it had been truly independent before the war, I'm not even going to get into that. I haven't researched it enough to have an educated opinion, but I suspect it really wasn't. But even if it had been more or less independent before the war, it sure as hell wasn't so during the war, and I would argue really ever since. And the relationship of the British state and Reuters during World War I evolved to be very much an incestuous kind of public-private partnership sort of affair, again, very similar to the relationship between the U.S. government and most large U.S. media outlets in our own era. Now, even beyond manipulating actual journalists and using American and other foreign journalists as fronts and conduits for their stories, Parker and his minions were also extremely savvy about social influence. They realized that they could most efficiently work on American opinion by working on and with and through prominent and influential Americans, or what today we would call influencers, not just through actual American journalists. So this is sort of like a force multiplying technique, right? Instead of trying to persuade hundreds of thousands or millions of average Americans to think or do a certain thing, instead, you make it much more efficient by targeting key influential individuals and institutions and persuading them and then letting them do the heavy lifting of persuading the masses. And again, this has the positive attribute as well of concealing where the propaganda is coming from or that it's even propaganda at all. 
In the case of certain particularly important and influential individuals, Parker would even bring some prominent Americans to the UK, where they would be kind of lavishly wined and dined by the British elite to work on their attitudes and opinions even more. Parker and his employees also used direct mail to target at least 200,000 influential Americans whose names they had gleaned from the publication Who's Who in America. Parker would send them material, giving them the UK government-approved narrative of the war, you know, things like who started it, who was to blame, who was committing all of the war crimes and atrocities, and so forth. Some of the most effective materials in terms of influencing influential Americans were a series of allegedly nominally historical little booklets put out by Oxford University which were predominantly written by prominent British academics, which gave them the veneer of elite kind of scholarliness and objectivity, right? This is the time period when the so-called social sciences had recently been established as a concept, and one of the alleged attributes of the new modern way of doing things like history and political science was this idea of detached objectivity. Stuart Ross describes these booklets as follows, quote, Easy to read, pocket-sized pamphlets rarely longer than 24 pages. They were written by Oxford University history faculty and authorities in related fields. Even the Bishop of London put his name on one. The common denominator for authorship were credentials that bespoke authenticity and credibility, for the contents were creative interpretations of modern European history. The most persuasive of these propaganda pieces successfully mask their biases. End quote. Now, let me repeat that last sentence one more time because notice how much it lines up with what I've been saying repeatedly throughout this episode so far. He says, the most persuasive of these propaganda pieces successfully concealed their biases. The New York Times book review in November of 1914, only several months into the war, put out what they called a Bibliography of the European War. It listed over 100 books that would supposedly help Americans to understand the war better, and it included the first seven of these Oxford propaganda pamphlets. And as you might imagine, there clearly was a bias or a slant to the Allied side in terms of this alleged bibliography to help you understand World War I. Over the course of the war, 87 of these Oxford pamphlets were published. Parker himself wrote four of them. Prominent British politicians' names were listed as authors on some of them, including Herbert Asquith, Arthur Balfour, Sir Edward Grey, and David Lloyd George. And if you know anything about British political history of this time period, you know those are literally some of the biggest names in terms of British political power. Stuart Ross argues that most, if not all, of these ones that are under the names of prominent British politicians were probably ghostwritten by Wellington House writers simply because during World War I, these politicians were probably not going to have enough time to sit down and write propaganda pamphlets. Very interestingly and revealingly, Woodrow Wilson's ambassador to the UK, who was Walter Hines Page, a guy who, among other things, aside from being a progressive Democrat supporter of Woodrow Wilson, was also a hardcore Anglophile and Teutonophobe, 
Walter Hines Page authored one of these pamphlets himself, or at least he was listed as its author. And in this case, Stuart Ross actually believes that Hines Page actually did write the Oxford pamphlet that was published under his byline because Hines Page had actually previously been a journalist, editor, and publisher before he was tapped to be America's ambassador to the UK. Wellington House also commissioned various articles and essays by prominent and respected British writers of the time to be published in American publications. And they had a pretty easy time because the heads of most of the American major publishers and publications of the time were, like most of the American elites generally, strongly pro-Allied and especially pro-British from the beginning of the war. Wellington House also reissued some things in American publication that had previously been published only in the UK. So, for example, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, if you don't know, was the creator of Sherlock Holmes, had written a fairly short propaganda pamphlet, less than 50 pages, called Germany and the Next War, which had been published in the UK actually the year before the war started. And in 1914, it was published in a hardcover edition in the U.S. Viscount James Bryce, who was a British historian and politician who had served as the U.K.'s ambassador to the U.S. from 1907 to 1913, would play a major role in a key early piece of British propaganda, which would come to be known as the Bryce Report, because Bryce was the chairman of the so-called Committee on Alleged German Atrocities, which produced this report. Now, a bit more on the Bryce Report later. But for now, just a little bit more on Bryce himself. As with Gilbert Parker, Bryce had spent a lot of time in the United States and had a pretty good understanding of the American mind. In the late 19th century, he had traveled extensively in the United States, including replicating the journey of Alexis de Tocqueville from the early 19th century, the journey which, of course, had informed and inspired Tocqueville's famous work, Democracy in America. And in addition, Bryce had studied American history and had even written an influential book called The American Commonwealth, published in 1888. And like I said, for about six years in the early 20th century, he was the British ambassador to the U.S. So he really understood America, and especially its elites, probably about as well as any Brit alive in the early 20th century. So he really knew how to appeal to Americans, especially the elite ones, including how best to flatter and manipulate them. Rudyard Kipling, who is probably most famous as the author of The Jungle Book, but who wrote a bunch of other stuff as well, including the notorious poem The White Man's Burden, which was written during the period in which the U.S. was taking over the Philippines, and in which Kipling is really urging the U.S. to start acting more like the British Empire. He contributed to British propaganda aimed at the U.S. as well and in fact managed to get pieces published on the front page of the New York Times no less than five times between 1914 and 1916. Gilbert Murray, who was a British classicist and probably the world's leading authority on ancient Greece at the time, wrote various essays and articles in favor of the Allied side of the war that were aimed at an American audience, 13 of which were collected and published as a book 
once the U.S. fully entered the war in the spring of 1917. In many of his pieces, he claimed to despise war, often quite eloquently. For example, in one essay, he claimed that he disliked war, quote, not merely for its own cruelty and folly, but because it is the enemy of all the causes that I care for most, of social progress and good governments and all friendliness and gentleness of life, as well as of art and learning and literature, end quote. He claimed to have opposed all of the major British imperial wars of the turn of the century, including the Boer War. But, nonetheless, in his World War I propaganda pieces, he always argued that this war, the Great War, was different, unique, that this war, at least from the Allied side, absolutely was just. So I would say that Murray was basically a prototypical liberal interventionist. Someone who constantly claims to be against war and all that goes along with it, and someone who sounds, you know, very educated and genteel and reasonable and humane, but who's willing to make a special case that this war, the one we're in right now, is an exception to his usual anti-war kind of leanings. Liberal interventionists, from Woodrow Wilson through to Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, they're always like this, including the media figures and writers that write on their behalf. And not surprisingly, Gilbert Murray seems to have been particularly effective at reaching America's educated liberal elites during World War I. It would be H.G. Wells, though, who would end up being the most prolific and almost certainly the most influential of the British writers in cranking out propaganda for the Great War, much of which was clearly aimed at American opinion. Wells would publish no less than five entire books of propaganda during the war. His first, published in 1914, was titled The War That Will End War. You know, that stupid fucking idea that many intelligent fools bought at the time. That this actually was a war to end all wars, when in reality it would simply give us the peace to end all peace. This book was a collection of essays. In one that was titled An Appeal to the American People, Wells argued that the U.S. had a destiny to intervene in the war in order to end it, and basically to have a hand in forging a new, better world order. He wrote, quote, The influence of your states upon the war's nature and duration must needs be enormous, and at its ending you may play a part such as no nation has ever played since the world began. It is not for ourselves we make this appeal to you. It is for the whole future of mankind. Already, the wounds of our dead cry out to you. End quote. Now, this kind of utopian, messianic notion and narrative and language, all of this played right into pre-existing American ideologies of exceptionalism and a destiny to redeem the world, ideas which, of course, Woodrow Wilson was an absolute Kool-Aid guzzler of, and when Wilson decided to intervene in the war, this was exactly what he saw his and America's role in the war as being, to be the Messiah nation that would step in and save and redeem the world by intervening in the Great War. Wells went on to write and publish four more propaganda books during World War I. The next one was What is Coming? A European Forecast. And that was followed by Italy, France, and Britain at War, 
and then Mr. Britling sees it through. And the last would be In the Fourth Year, Anticipation of a World Peace, which was published early in 1918, which would, of course, end up being the final year of the war. Like a lot of the British sort of center-left establishment, as well as like many leading American progressives once the U.S. got into the war, and like Gilbert Murray, whom I've already mentioned, Wells would frequently claim to hate war and would even label himself a pacifist. Of course, this would be in the context of a book or an essay that's strongly cheerleading World War I as some sort of noble exception to his normal default pacifism. For example, in the book Italy, France, and Britain at War, he wrote, quote, I avow myself an extreme pacifist. I am against the man who takes up the weapon. I do not merely want to stop this war. I want to nail down war in its coffin, end quote. Then a little later in the same book, he says, quote, I hate Germany, which has thrust this experience upon mankind, as I hate some terrible infectious disease. The new war, the war on the modern level, is her invention and her crime, end quote. Again, you get the message that, of course, most wars are evil and unnecessary, but this one is a special exception that even a self-avowed, quote-unquote, extreme pacifist ought to support, because A, this war actually is a war to end war itself, and B, the Germans are just uniquely evil and deserve all of the blame for this war happening in the first place. So H.G. Wells, along with many Americans, such as, for example, the progressive intellectual John Dewey, these sorts of people who professed pacifism and then propagandized for war were basically really pacifists between wars. Which I suppose is kind of like being a vegetarian between meals. And to make matters worse, the one war that they were claiming was an exception to their normal default pacifism was fucking World War I. Not only a war whose origins and morality are extremely complicated and ambivalent and ambiguous, to put it mildly, but also a war that at the time was by far the bloodiest and most destructive in human history, and which still today is the second bloodiest and most destructive war, topped only by its sequel, WWII. Though the Biden administration and the American establishment currently seem to be telling World War II, hey, hold my beer. Stuart Halsey Ross calls Wells's novel, Mr. Britling Sees It Through, which I have not read in its entirety, I've just read excerpts of it. Ross refers to this novel as, quote, Wells's most powerful propaganda text, end quote, and sums it up as, quote, a stiff upper lip vision of John Bull at war, end quote. This book came out in 1916 and was a big seller throughout the English-speaking world, especially the UK, Australia, and the US. It was reviewed very favorably at the time by the New York Times Book Review, which said of it, quote, We find it regarded, even at this early date, as something in the nature of a historical document, end quote. This was a novel. This was fiction. They said that about it. This book covers the experience of the war from the perspective of a fictional famous writer living in the London suburbs, obviously at least to some large degree based on Wells himself. 
the novel's protagonist, Mr. Britling, initially does not understand the reasons for the war. But he ultimately comes to the conclusion that Britain had no choice but to fight and to win the war, and that Germany and so-called Prussian militarism was 100% to blame for the entire conflict. This is all, by the way, expressed in a letter that Mr. Britling writes at the end of the novel, after his own son has died in France. A letter that he's writing to a German family he knows, who have also lost a son in the war. The letter is really Wells expressing his own views on the war as of 1916, which of course perfectly line up with all of the British establishment's propaganda being cranked out at the time. By the way, from the synopses I've read and the excerpts I've read, this novel also apparently contains some bashing and criticism of the U.S. for still being neutral, nominally at least, as of 1916. Now, I'll give Wells his due on one thing. By the time of his last wartime book, titled In the Fourth Year, he seems to have realized, probably due to revelations by the Bolsheviks of secret treaties among the Allies to try to take all the spoils they could from Germany once they won the war, that this war was not in fact quite the noble crusade that Wells had thought it was. And so, he no longer seems to have believed in the absolute pureness of the Allied cause. But instead of turning rationally and kind of virtuously cynical about all aspects of the war, and instead of turning skeptical of the elites who'd run the Allied side of it, he instead turned to cranking out propaganda in support of the League of Nations. Because, like Woodrow Wilson himself, he believed that the League of Nations would solve any iniquities that came out of the Treaty of Versailles. Another British author, one much less famous than Wells, wrote another very influential war propaganda novel. This writer was a woman who had been born in Australia with the name Mary Annette Beauchamp. She later would change her last name to von Arnim and got title as a countess when she married a German aristocrat who died 19 years after they were married, after which she had an affair with none other than H.G. Wells for several years right before World War I. She wrote her wartime propaganda novel under the pseudonym Alice Cholmondeley, and this would be the only novel she ever wrote that was published under that particular name. And the novel in question was titled simply Christine. No relation, of course, to the Stephen King book about the evil car that was made into a pretty decent horror movie by John Carpenter in the 1980s. According to the seminal World War I propaganda researcher Harold Laswell, after the war, a German propagandist had confided to him, to Laswell, that German propagandists rated Christine as, quote, the best piece of propaganda work gotten out by the Allies during the course of the war, end quote. The novel is supposed to have been based on actual wartime letters written by a female English violinist living in Germany, writing back to her mother in the UK, and the violinist's name is Christine not surprisingly, given the title of the book. Now, this was a common method of constructing a novel in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Even Bram Stoker's Dracula uses this method of conveying the novel through things like letters, 
often with a kind of Blair Witch-like claim that this is based on a real thing. Now, in the case of Dracula, I don't think anyone really took it seriously as a real thing. It's just part of the fun, just like in a horror movie that you watch that clearly is not real, but, you know, says something about, oh, this is found footage that really happened or whatever. But in the case of Christine, I think at least initially the author was genuinely trying to pass it off as real letters, and at least some of the early readers of this book probably saw it as such. These letters start the month before the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and, of course, the beginning of World War I. Basically, the novel is all about Christine's overwhelmingly negative experience of Germans and of their culture as just brutal and authoritarian. She makes all sorts of outlandish claims, such as, for example, she claims that German schoolchildren often commit suicide because they're so overworked at school. And in general, Germans are portrayed as not much more than kind of mindless barbarians who just unquestioningly obey their rulers all the time. The book ends in 1914, in the early phases of the war, with depictions of all Germans supposedly being bloodthirsty and excited for the war. Which, to be clear, pretty accurately describes the majority of all all of the populations of all of the belligerents of World War I in the early days of the war, not just the Germans. Yes, were lots of Germans in the early days and weeks of the war reacting with glee to the war? Yes. But so were lots of Brits and Russians and French people and so forth. Lots of people in all of the belligerent countries were gleefully cheering the outbreak of war. So this is a classic case of a lie by omission. Like, yeah, there were lots of Germans excited about the war, but there were lots of everybody else, too. In August of 1914, supposedly Christine dies of pneumonia, and that's, of course, the end of the novel. Now, as with Mr. Britling, I have not read Christine cover to cover myself, and in both cases, I do not have the time nor the desire to read that much of war propaganda novel. But as with Mr. Britling, I've read multiple kind of descriptions and synopses of it, as well as some excerpts, and Christine is generally regarded as very well written and as appealing very effectively to people's emotions, and also as doing a very effective job of creating an us-versus-them feeling in the part of the reader towards the Germans. The book was really aimed at the whole English-speaking world, including the U.S., and it seems to have made a pretty big impact from what we can tell. A lot of people seem to have believed that it really was a true story based on real letters from a real English woman living in Germany in the summer of 1914, though in reality, all of it was a fabrication by the author. So this is like a multi-layered camo job, right? This is war propaganda masquerading as a novel masquerading as nonfiction, you might say. Stuart Halsey Ross writes of Christine, quote, Christine contains no atrocities, no biased views of modern European history, no tirades against the Kaiser. Rather, the book was simply a skillfully calculated bearing of a narrow interpretation of the quote-unquote German character, sufficient to establish the vast gulf separating the Anglo-Saxon tribe from the Teutonic tribe and so to justify the killings, end quote. 
In addition to nonfiction books and novels, another medium, aside from, you know, print newspaper journalism, that was used very effectively by the British propagandists to great effect were political cartoons. And the number one anti-German cartoonist during World War I was actually a Dutch artist named Louis Raymakers. Now, the Dutch government actually stayed neutral in regard to World War I. But Raymakers himself was vehemently anti-German and disagreed with the policy of neutrality on the part of his government. At the invitation of the British government, Raymakers moved to London and did propaganda for the UK government for the remainder of the war. For their part, the Dutch government seems to have been happy to be rid of him because they were getting pressured by the German government to kind of shut him up. And the Dutch government worried that Raymaker's loud mouth or loud, you know, paintbrush or whatever might be endangering the Dutch policy of neutrality. British propagandists, by contrast, were quite happy to share and blast Raymaker's work far and wide, including the United States. In fact, thanks to Wellington House, collections of his cartoons in book form were published in the U.S. during the war. British Prime Minister Asquith even put his name to an introduction, probably ghostwritten, to one of these collections, which praised Raymakers, saying that the Dutch cartoonist's, quote, powerful work gives form and color to the menace which the Allies are averting for the liberty, the civilization, and the humanity of the future. He shows us our enemies as they appear to the unbiased eyes of a neutral, and where his pictures are seen, determination will be strengthened to tolerate no end of the war save the final overthrow of the Prussian military power, end quote. That first collection of Raymaker's cartoons, the one to which Asquith supposedly wrote the introduction, was published in 1916. A second followed in 1917, and a third in 1918. Each one of these volumes saw anti-German depictions and caricatures that were even worse than those found in the last. Now, aside from publishing his collections in the U.S., Wellington House actually brought Raymakers himself to the United States to tour in 1917, shortly after the U.S. declaration of war during which Raymakers gave interviews and was invited as a guest to various high society events and even got a contract to have his work featured in the Hearst newspapers. Also, by the way, during his tour of the United States, Raymakers met both former President Teddy Roosevelt and then current President Woodrow Wilson. Raymaker's 1918 volume was titled America in the War, because of course by that time the U.S. was fully engaged in the war. And the American Committee on Public Information, which Woodrow Wilson created soon after the American government entered the war to be the centerpiece of U.S. propaganda and censorship, and which of course I will be talking about extensively in future installments in this miniseries, the American Committee on Public Information contributed to this volume, America in the War, including contributions from such American warhawk politicians as Albert Sidney Burleson, who was Woodrow Wilson's postmaster general, and who, in addition to being a hardcore warmonger, was also a hardcore racist, as well as Lindley M. Garrison, who was then Wilson's Secretary of War, 
and Warhawk Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a close friend and longtime political ally of Teddy Roosevelt. And by the way, Lodge and Teddy Roosevelt spent the time from 1914 to 1917 mostly criticizing Wilson from the right for not getting America into World War I sooner than he ultimately did. Now, Raymaker's work, perhaps not surprisingly, consistently depicted all Germans as bloodthirsty barbarians and the Kaiser himself as monstrous and in some cases even literally satanic. He frequently depicted Germans committing atrocities in his work. And Stuart Halsey Ross writes of his work and its influence in the U.S., quote, In all the volumes, the cartoons themselves are horrible depictions of an inhuman enemy, but the accompanying descriptive, quote-unquote, analyses are often more extreme. That Americans accepted such interpretations is clear testimony to the anti-German hysteria that had already been established in the United States. And I'll try to remember to throw some examples of his work into the show notes for this episode on my website, which you can get to by putting in DangerousHistoryPodcast.com or ProfCJ.org. Also briefly mention some of the other types of media used for World War I propaganda, aside from print material, which would include printed word, which printed word material in terms of just overall volume of material is definitely number one in World War I propaganda. So we're talking newspaper articles, magazine articles, pamphlets, books, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, print material would also include things like cartoons by people like Lewis Raymakers. But there were other propaganda media used, or media used for propaganda purposes, that also had a big impact as well. And, of course, there's no way to quantify, right? There's no way to say, like, well, printed word was 21% more effective than this, and film was 17% more effective than pictures, or, you know, there's no way to really quantify that. but. Another medium that was used widely for propaganda purposes during World War I were so-called lectures. And there was, in fact, an entire thing known as a lecture circuit, or the lecture circuit, back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And public lectures could draw large audiences, and people who were effective at this media could become celebrities and make good money touring around. So, believe it or not... The so-called lecture circuit was a major form of popular media in many countries, especially the U.S., in the late 19th and early 20th century. And for sure, skillful speakers with interesting stories to tell or topics to discuss 
often drew very large crowds in venues like theaters, you know, playhouses, that sort of thing. Now, keep in mind, this is before radio became a big deal in the U.S. and became the dominant form of spoken word media, a position that radio would hold for nearly a century until podcasts would blow up more recently. The first patents for radios were issued in the 1890s, but broadcast radio shows and widespread radio ownership didn't happen in the U.S. until the 1920s. So, getting back to the lecture circuit, just as an aside, possibly the most famous and successful and popular guy to ever do the so-called lecture circuit, not just in the U.S., but in many other countries around the world, was actually Mark Twain. Now, most people today, when they think of lecture, they think of, you know, some boring professor in front of a room of captive audience students who's just droning on about stuff that no one really cares about other than insofar as they want to pass the next test. But a lecture by a guy like Mark Twain is very different from that. Mark Twain was, of course, very funny, very witty, and his quote-unquote lectures combined telling of interesting stories with things like social commentary and, of course, his renowned humor laced throughout. So this is why Mark Twain is very often considered the first real stand-up comedian in world history. Of course, not all lecturers were as funny as Mark Twain, and some really weren't humorous at all. But in general, people who were good at public speaking and storytelling could do well for themselves if they had something interesting to say that people wanted to hear. Twain, by the way, did no lecturing during World War I because he died four years before the war started. And if he had still been alive during World War I, though, I believe he probably would have opposed U.S. entry into the war, because he had a pretty strong and consistent anti-interventionist track record during his lifetime. He had opposed the Spanish-American War and also the U.S. takeover of the Philippines and the war that that brought on at the turn of the century. Some of y'all listening may know that Twain wrote a really great anti-war piece in the context of the Spanish-American War called The War Prayer. And a few years ago, I recorded myself reading that piece and put it out as a bonus episode for supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast at the $5 per month level and higher on Patreon and Subscribestar if you're interested. So the point is, if you wanted to be able to deliver any sort of long spoken word presentation to a mass audience during the time period of World War I, your best bet was still to travel and tour and deliver your speeches in person to a series of hopefully packed theater audiences. And of course, I can't help but note that Jordan Peterson's quote-unquote lecture tours in recent years are in a way very much a throwback to the lecture circuit of over a century ago. And Wellington House, of course, was happy to use this as part of their giant arsenal of media for propaganda. They arranged and very often even sponsored lecturers to tour around the United States, giving presentations to playhouses full of people, explaining, of course, the British view of World War I and bashing the Germans and why America ought to want to get into the war and all these sorts of things. 
when Wellington House facilitated their pro-allied, pro-war lecturers in the U.S., sometimes they would cover the cost so that the admission for the audience would be free in order to maximize the attendance. But other times they would charge admission and then they would funnel the profits from doing that into funding future propaganda projects. And I'll just mention one of the more noteworthy and possibly the most popular British lecturers in the U.S. during the period of World War I, and that was a Welsh captain named A. Radcliffe Dugmore. Now, Dugmore, before World War I, had been sort of a, a globe-trotting naturalist and photographer and hunter. And prior to the war, he had already made a name and a following for himself by lecturing about big game hunting in Africa. And he had already toured the United States speaking about that. When World War I came along, even though he was in his 40s, he got himself commissioned as a British Army officer, and he did serve in the trenches. And in fact, he was severely injured, I don't know the details, but he was severely injured in some fashion by poison gas at the horrific Battle of the Somme. Now, whatever exactly happened to him as a result of that, his injuries were bad enough that he was removed from action for the remainder of the war, but apparently he was still physically able to give lectures. So he instead switched over to serving the British war effort in a propaganda capacity. And he had a major hit lecture titled Fighting It Out that seems to have been very popular in the U.S. And again, he was probably the most famous British war propagandist lecturer in the U.S. during World War I, but he was by no means the only one. of lies that were used in World War I propaganda. So, in his classic book, Falsehood in Wartime, Arthur Ponsonby describes a variety of different types of lies found in World War I propaganda, because, of course, there are many, many, many ways to manipulate people's beliefs, attitudes, and feelings in a deceptive way, beyond just stating things that are not factually correct. In fact, it is quite possible to be both factual, but not truthful, as I think Michael Malice originally kind of put it. Um, I think he said something like, the mainstream American media is very good at being factual while not being truthful. 
So you do this most commonly by carefully cherry-picking which facts support your narrative and only giving your consumers those while deliberately leaving out any other facts which might be just as equally factually true, but that would complicate or problematize your narrative. Or that might even cause people consuming your propaganda to realize that your narrative is outright bullshit. In other words, a carefully curated collection of facts is often one of the most effective ways to craft a propaganda narrative, because if people just do superficial quote-unquote fact-checking, all the things that they look up are going to come back as factually correct, and they may not, in the process, stumble across all the other facts that you deliberately excluded that would massively change their impression of whatever topic it is you're trying to propagandize them on. Anyway, here are the various types of manipulative, deceptive techniques that Ponsonby lists off, and I think it's a pretty good list. Keep in mind that he's talking primarily and especially about British propaganda, although you should remember that all of the belligerent governments in World War I did most or all of these things to varying extents and degrees of effectiveness. It's just the British did it the most and did it the best. So, quote from Ponsonby, There are several different sorts of disguises which falsehood can take. There is the deliberate official lie, issued either to delude the people at home or to mislead the enemy abroad. There is the deliberate lie, concocted by an ingenious mind, which may only reach a small circle, but which, if sufficiently graphic and picturesque, may be caught up and spread by broadcast. And there is the hysterical hallucination on the part of weak-minded individuals. There is the lie heard and not denied, although lacking in evidence, and then repeated or allowed to circulate. There is the mistranslation, occasionally originating in a genuine mistake, but often more deliberate. And end quote for a moment here. By the way, this last one that I just mentioned is an extremely common one, still widely used to this day. To mistranslate someone who's speaking in a language different from yours usually on purpose, and only occasionally just by mistake, in order to paint your enemy in the worst light possible. Anyway, back to Ponsonby, quote, There is the general obsession, started by rumor and magnified by repetition and elaborated by hysteria, which at least gains general acceptance. There is the deliberate forgery, which has to be carefully manufactured, but serves its purpose at the moment, even though it be eventually exposed. There is the omission of passages from official documents, and the quote-unquote correctness of words and commas in parliamentary answers which conceal evasions of the truth. There is the deliberate exaggeration. There is the concealment of truth, which has to be resorted to so as to prevent anything to the credit of the enemy reaching the public. There is the faked photograph. The cinema also played a very important part, especially in neutral countries, and helped considerably in turning opinion in America in favor of coming in on the side of the Allies. Atrocity lies were the most popular of all, especially in this country, by which he means the UK, and in America. No war can be without them. Slander of the enemy is esteemed a patriotic duty. The repetition of a single instance of cruelty and its exaggeration can be distorted into a prevailing habit on the part of the enemy. 
end quote for a moment here. And a lot of times these atrocity stories, I mean, sometimes they're just completely made up, but sometimes they're based on something that did happen that was messed up, but very quickly, sometimes on purpose and sometimes just sort of naturally by the way people are, it gets exaggerated and amped up and turn into not just, oh, this one instance where this one enemy soldier did something they shouldn't have, but no, this is, you know, standard operating procedure for these evil monsters, and they're doing some horrific thing all the time. And to me, it's like a game of telephone. And again, sometimes whatever is said at the beginning of a game of telephone gets grossly distorted into something completely different by the end of the game, just, you know, by accident. And sometimes you might have members of the game of telephone that are deliberately having fun by just, you know, making something absurd. And you can then see how in this kind of metaphor of a game of telephone, if you've got propaganda agencies deliberately intervening for certain narrative purposes, they can manipulate the game of telephone to make the end result even worse in terms of painting the enemy as just a bunch of monsters who do atrocities 24-7. Back to Ponsonby, quote, there are lies emanating from the inherent unreliability and fallibility of human testimony. When bias and emotion are introduced, human testimony becomes quite valueless. There is pure romance. There are evasions, concealments, and half-truths, which are more subtly misleading and gradually become a governmental habit. There is official secrecy, which must necessarily mislead public opinion. There is sham official indignation, depending on genuine popular indignation, which is a form of falsehood. There are personal accusations and false charges made in a prejudiced war atmosphere to discredit persons who refuse to adopt the orthodox attitudes towards the war. There are lying recriminations between one country and another. Other varieties of falsehood more subtle and elusive might be found, but the above pretty well cover the ground, end quote. And I would agree, that's a pretty extensive and exhaustive list of most of the general forms that propaganda lies can take during wartime. So, what were the main propaganda narratives of British World War I propaganda? A basic list into which most things could be put into one or more of the following categories would be, first, Germany's, quote-unquote, sole guilt and responsibility for starting the war in the first place. Second would be, Germany is a uniquely militaristic, aggressive, and expansionist empire with global ambitions. Next, the Kaiser is a uniquely evil leader. Next would be German atrocity stories. And, you know, most things fit into that list. I suppose you could add a category, something like there's something inherently wrong or evil about the Germans, but that could probably be lumped under, depending on the exact narrative being told, either Germany as a uniquely militaristic and aggressive empire or the Kaiser as a uniquely evil leader. So I'm going to go through and talk in more detail about each of these categories, and I'll give some specific examples of each, although, you know, this this podcast episode could be 27 hours if I went over literally every British propaganda story told in all these different categories. But before I get into that, I do want to just mention a little bit more about something I already mentioned earlier in the episode, which is the importance of Belgium in British propaganda. 
the German invasion and occupation of Belgium and the war crimes and atrocities, some admittedly real, many exaggerated and many also outright made up, that were allegedly committed by the Germans against the Belgians, were absolutely central to a lot of the narratives of British propaganda both in terms of the propaganda that the British government was pumping into its own domestic population in order to keep them supportive of the war, as well as the propaganda the British government were pumping into neutral countries to try to recruit as many of them to their side as possible. And of course, as we've mentioned, and as common sense would illustrate, no neutral country was even close to being as important to the British war effort as the U.S. in terms of the priority to, in a very desperate sense, to try to recruit them to their side of the war in order to ensure victory. Yeah, the British were happy to recruit other countries that started off neutral to their side as well, but the U.S. was the number one priority by a mile. So again, I'll refer to Arthur Ponsonby in his book Falsehood in Wartime that, again, was written in the late 1920s. He writes of this whole Belgian issue, quote, Whatever may have been the causes of the Great War, the German invasion of Belgium was certainly not one of them. It was one of the first consequences of the war. But the government, by which he means the government of the UK, realizing how doubtful it was whether they could rouse public enthusiasm over a secret obligation to France, was able, owing to Germany's fatal blunder, remember the Schlieffen plan, to represent the invasion of Belgium and the infringement on the Treaty of Neutrality as the cause of our participation in it. The invasion of Belgium came as a godsend to the government and the press, and they jumped to take advantage of this pretext, fully appreciating its value from the point of view of rallying public opinion. End quote. And yet, to me, the German invasion of Belgium at the start of World War I always reminds me of the Confederates deciding to fire on Fort Sumter and kicking off the U.S. Civil War. Because in both cases, you've got a situation where one side wants to go to war but doesn't yet have a really good excuse that's going to unify public opinion behind it. And in both cases, the other side does something that is, you know, from a PR narrative point of view, really stupid, that hands their enemies their narrative, basically. So, you know, by the Confederates deciding to fire first, by firing on Fort Sumter, that did a lot to consolidate a big majority of Northern public opinion behind going to war against the Confederacy. Which, you can look at, there's even a book, it's called something like, I can't remember the title, there's a book which basically looks at Northern newspaper editorials in the early phases of the Civil War, and trying to use that as a basic proxy for public opinion, because we don't have public opinion polls from back then, obviously. But what this book shows is something like Northern editorials in the Civil War, I forget. Anyway, I think I even have a copy somewhere, but I got so damn many books I can't find it. But what this book shows is that Using editorials as a rough barometer for public sentiment in the North, you find that in the period in between when the Deep South states seceded and then the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, public opinion was very divided in the North, and a lot of Northerners seem to have been of the opinion that the South should be allowed to leave in peace. Some of them even were like, good riddance, we don't want to have to share a government with them anyway. You know, they were comfortable with national divorce. But... When the Confederates, now, you know, from their perspective, and there's at least a case to be made that they were somewhat backed into a corner with Fort Sumter, 
But when the Confederates decided to technically fire the first shot, even though you could argue they were somewhat provoked into it, this handed the pro-war Northerners their narrative. We have to go to war. We can't just let them peacefully leave. They're firing on our facilities. And while certainly not everybody in the North jumped on the war bandwagon, it seems like a very big majority did. And similarly, whatever strategic merits there may have been to the idea of Germany invading Belgium to kick off the Schlieffen Plan, from a propaganda narrative information war point of view, it was a godsend to the British, as Ponsonby rightly notes. And of course, the British establishment press, led by the ultimate establishment paper over there, the Times of London, immediately jumped on this narrative that basically the UK was only very reluctantly going to war because they were forced to by Germany's invasion of poor little Belgium. Though, as I've already discussed in this episode, much of the top levels of the British establishment had been itching to go to war against Germany for some years by this point for much more cynical reasons, and it was they who had made the secret promise to team up with France in the event of a war with Germany. But anyway, the Times of London, as early as August 5th, 1914, said, quote, We are going into a war that is forced upon us as the defenders of the weak and the champions of the liberties of Europe, end quote. Now, had they any shame about such hypocrisy, they would have refrained from such bullshit, given the way that the British had been treating Ireland for literally fucking centuries by this point. But of course, the hypocrisy of the British establishment, just like that of the American establishment, knows absolutely no fucking bounds. But even setting aside the gross hypocrisy of the UK government's stance regarding Belgium versus what they'd been doing to Ireland for centuries, as Ponsonby points out, there were various speeches and documents from the British establishment themselves that revealed to an honest researcher like Ponsonby that the Belgium alibi was bullshit, that it was just a cover story. Because various establishment figures and media outlets occasionally did let the cat out of the bag, some even as early as while the war was still going on. So, for example, on March 15th, 1915, the Times said that, quote, Our honor and our interest must have compelled us to join France and Russia, even if Germany had scrupulously respected the rights of her small neighbors and had sought to hack her way into France through the eastern fortresses, end quote. So, things like that, other stuff that Ponsonby and other researchers have put the spotlight on, lead me to conclude that even if Germany had been image-savvy enough to not go through Belgium, the UK elite still would have sooner or later come up with some sort of a pretext for intervention, who knows, maybe even a false flag. But Germany, as is so often the case, was her own worst enemy when it comes to grand strategy and PR, and the Germans saved the British the trouble of having to come up with a pretext of their own, maybe even pull off a false flag. Now, part of the reason for the pretend pearl-clutching concern for Belgium was that they were small. You know, one of the smaller countries in Europe, and certainly much smaller than Germany. And obviously that's true. Belgium's a much smaller country than Germany, so you can craft a bully you know, narrative there. But also, it was, you know, Belgium is this peaceful, neutral country that's just being attacked, right? Well, 
Belgium actually wasn't really neutral as of 1914. As some secret documents eventually revealed once they were exposed, in fact, as early as 1906, the Belgian government had basically made a secret de facto alliance with the French and British governments. In these documents, which Ponsonby revealed in the late 1920s, plans were made to bring British and French troops into Belgium in the event of a war with Germany. And in these documents, the British and French are referred to as quote-unquote allies, and Germany is referred to as the quote-unquote enemy. Now, as of this recording, I honestly don't know if we know the degree to which the German government may have either known or suspected this secret de facto alliance. But I doubt that they didn't at least have some suspicion that Belgium's public face of neutrality was just a facade. The French military had also, in the winter of 1910 to 1911, made plans to potentially invade Belgium and violate their neutrality if, in the event of war with Germany, the Belgians didn't allow French troops voluntarily onto their soil. So in reality, it was just that the Germans beat the French to the punch of sending troops into Belgium at the outbreak of war. Another point that I think is worth making as well in regard to Belgium is this. By making a de facto alliance with Belgium prior to the war, but keeping it secret, in other words, by not, prior to the war breaking out, letting the German government know very clearly and explicitly that they might go to war to defend Belgium, the French and especially the British governments actually made the invasion of Belgium by the Germans more enticing than it otherwise would have been. In other words, had the Germans known that invading Belgium would guarantee that the UK would declare war on them, the German government might have reconsidered the strategy of invading Belgium. Or in other words, deterrence only works when you very clearly let the entity that you're trying to deter know in no uncertain terms what it is you're willing to do in response to whatever it is you're trying to deter them from doing. So, kind of reminds me of the U.S. government in regards to Ukraine in the years leading up to the Russian invasion. So, talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO without actually intending to do it anytime soon, kind of, you know, keeping it vague, whether or not the U.S. would actually, what the U.S. would do in regard to a Russian invasion, it basically amounts to a provocation without any real deterrence on the flip side. You know, if you're walking towards me and I've got a gun and I keep it vague and either I don't say anything or I say something really vague and then you keep walking towards me and I shoot you. I didn't do a good job of deterrence, right? It would be much more effective deterrence if I clearly and loudly say, don't take another step towards me or I will shoot you. Now, maybe the bad guy still takes a step towards me and I have to shoot him. I have no choice. But the point is, there's no deterrent value. I don't know. Maybe the metaphor is even better if I've got a gun that's like concealed. I'm holding a snubby revolver in a coat pocket and you're coming towards me. And my plan is if you, you know, take another step towards me, I'm going to shoot you. But I don't tell you that. I think that would probably be ruled an unjustified homicide. Whereas if, you know, I clearly point a gun at you and say, stop, don't come any closer or I will shoot you. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you've got a knife or something like that. So you're a credible threat to me. And I clearly let you know. And then you continue towards me and I shoot you. You know, assuming you had a weapon or were otherwise a serious threat to me. A sane court of law 
and a reasonable jury would probably say, yeah, that's justifiable. Ponsonby concludes on the question of the overall stance of the British and French governments in regard to Belgium on the eve of the Great War, quote, The invasion of Belgium was not the cause of the war. The invasion of Belgium was not unexpected. The invasion of Belgium did not shock the moral susceptibilities of either the British or French governments. But it may be admitted that finding themselves in the position which they had themselves largely contributed to create, the British and French governments in the first stages of the Great War were fully justified and indeed urgently compelled to arrange the facts and distort the implications as they did, given always the standard of morality which war involves. To color the picture with the pigment of falsehood so as to excite popular indignation was imperative, and it was done with complete success. End quote. And the way that British propaganda often dealt with the German invasion of Belgium often at least left it kind of implied, and relatively ignorant masses would be, at least a lot of them, likely to conclude that World War I started when Germany invaded Belgium. When in reality, as Ponsonby said, that was just a consequence of the war having already begun. And that, to me, always calls to mind the way that the W. Bush administration dealt with Saddam Hussein in the run-up to Iraq War II, where they never explicitly said that Saddam Hussein's regime had something to do with 9-11, but they implied it real strongly, to the point where opinion polls conducted back then showed, I believe, that a majority of the American population believed, for quite a while, and probably some still do today, that in fact Saddam's regime had something to do with 9-11. Now, they never said it again. They, ne they were careful to never say it explicitly and clearly like that, but they would say things like, oh, he's got ties to Al-Qaeda and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so that's kind of the way some British propaganda dealt with the German invasion of Belgium. And Belgium did not just serve as the initial justification for a British declaration of war against Germany. It also remained one of the main topics of British propaganda used to justify continuing the war for the next four years. Again, both in the propaganda they aimed at their domestic population as well as the propaganda they aimed at other countries. And one more problem I'll mention here regarding the truthfulness or lack thereof about this whole poor little innocent neutral victim Belgium narrative is this. Even setting aside what we now know, what I just mentioned a few minutes ago about Belgium really being secretly not actually neutral in regard to European alliances prior to the war. In other words, even accepting for the sake of argument, if Belgium actually was truly neutral in regard to European great power alliances. There's also the problem with this whole idea of them being this like peaceful, inoffensive country whose government's hands were clean. There's this really inconvenient fact about that whole idea. And that is the fact that the Belgian government had been carrying out arguably the most horrific and brutal European imperial project of all for decades prior to World War I. And of course, here I'm talking about their brutal takeover and vicious exploitation of the Congo in Central Africa. 
Now, I'm not going to get into the details of that here because of time, but if you're not familiar with the story of the horrors of the Belgian Congo, I would point you in the direction of the book King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild, as well as the documentary movie based on the book that has the same title, King Leopold's Ghost. The way that the Belgians took over and exploited the Congo makes the behavior of all of the other European colonial empires in Africa at the time look not that bad by comparison. Like, it was so horrific what they did and how they ran Congo that even a lot of the other European imperial powers who were active in Africa at the time were like, dude, come on, you're making us all look bad. Like, this, yeah, we do horrible stuff taking over our territories and running them and whatever, but you're going beyond the pale. Ironically, a lot of the horrible atrocities that British propaganda would falsely claim that Germans were doing on a regular basis against Belgians during World War I, things like mutilating people, cutting off their limbs and other body parts, killing them in like really ridiculous, horrific ways and so forth. A lot of those sorts of things actually had been committed by Belgians against the Congolese for years before the war in Europe broke out. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the actions of the Belgian state in the Congo would make it okay for Germans to then commit any atrocities in Belgium during the First World War. For sure, Germany did not invade and occupy Belgium in the name of trying to free the Congolese people or anything like that. Furthermore, I don't believe in the concepts of collective guilt and collective punishment. And the fact is, the vast majority of ordinary Belgian people did not personally commit the atrocities in the Congo. Also, uh, and it's been a while since I read the book King Leopold's Ghost and watched the documentary, so I don't recall if Hochschild said anything about this in there, but I suspect that the majority of the average Belgian population at home in Belgium probably didn't even really know the dirty details of what was going on down in the Congo at the hands of, quote-unquote, their government. Any more than most average Americans walking around right now really know, for example, about the atrocities and war crimes that, quote-unquote, their government has helped the Saudis commit in Yemen for almost a decade as of this recording. But still, the fact is that Belgium by which I really mean the Belgian state, was not a relatively innocent and genuinely neutral state prior to World War I in the same way that, for example, Switzerland actually was. The Belgian state was, unlike Switzerland, secretly colluding with one side of the great power alliances prior to the war, and the Belgian state, unlike the Swiss, had been carrying out a particularly brutal overseas colonial operation for decades. But the Allied, and especially British propaganda of World War I, portrayed the Belgian state as being basically just as relatively innocent and benign and inoffensive as the Swiss state, and they then drastically exaggerated the degree to which the Germans were supposedly routinely abusing the Belgian population. Again, it was a hostile military occupation during a major war, so I certainly don't doubt that German forces did do some morally and legally wrong things in Belgium, but it was not really anywhere near as bad in most cases as the British painted it out to be, and it certainly wasn't as common as they made it out to be. So anyway, now I'm going to go through one by one that list of the main narratives of British propaganda 
during World War One. So the first is that Germany bore sole guilt and responsibility for starting the war in the first place. As Arthur Ponsonby writes, quote, The accusation against the enemy of sole responsibility for the war is common form in every nation and in every war. It is a necessary falsehood based on a momentary biased opinion of one side in a dispute, and it becomes the indispensable basis of all subsequent propaganda. End quote. Wars are extremely complicated. Even a war between just two states, the origins of it are usually very messy and complex. And when you're talking about a war between a whole bunch of different countries, the origins of it are going to be even more messy and complicated. Wars where one side actually deserves 100% of the blame for the war happening are extremely rare throughout history. But governments almost always claim that they only went to war purely for defense and they had no choice. I mean, even the Romans back in their day would come up with these elaborate narratives about why, you know, invading and conquering Gaul was a purely defensive thing that they had no choice but to reluctantly do. When it's obvious, if you study the story, that that's not at all what was happening. As early as August 5th, 1914, the very day that the UK got into the war, the Times of London was already claiming that, quote, Germany has deliberately brought on the crisis, which now hangs over Europe, end quote. The following day, they ran a piece that claimed Germany and Austria shared joint responsibility, but it's amazing how often that Austria was often left out of the propaganda narratives, and the war was more often than not 100% blamed on Germany, even though one could make a credible case that Austria might deserve as much or maybe even a little bit more blame for the war breaking out in the first place, to say nothing of the various degrees of blame which other nations, including the Allied ones, deserved. The fact is, the more you dig into the details of the origins of World War I, the more obvious it is that there is a lot of blame to go around. And there are several good entire books just on this issue. Now, due to time, I'm not going to go into debunking the it's 100% Germany's fault narrative, which almost no modern-day professional historians who focus on World War I take seriously at all. And in fact, much of the academic historian community in the Allied nations, or at least in the U.S. and U.K., were already abandoning that narrative by the 1920s. But if you want a very even-handed and very detailed and fairly recently published book written about this issue, check out the book The Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clark. Arthur Ponsonby, again, writing only about one decade after the Great War ended, wrote, quote, 
The causes were precedent and far-reaching, and it is doubtful if even the historians of the future will be able to apportion the blame between the powers with any degree of accuracy. End quote. In that passage, Ponsonby then quotes a British aristocrat, Lord Cecil of Chelwood, who in a 1927 speech blamed the Great War on, quote, the gigantic competition in armaments before the war, end quote and who then went on to say of it, quote, No one could deny that the state of mind produced by armament competitions prepared the soil on which grew up the terrible plant which ultimately fruited the Great War, end quote. So he's saying that it's basically the competition amongst the various states' military-industrial complexes. And I think if you add in dynastic, imperial, and commercial rivalries, plus kind of just straight-up nationalism slash jingoism. I think that's really the basic mix if you want to talk about ultimate causes of World War I, and all of the participants in the war deserve at least some degree of blame in regard to all of those ultimate causes. Of course, I should mention that the it's 100% Germany's fault narrative wasn't just used by the British and their allies during the war while it was still going on in order to maximize anti-German sentiment at home and abroad. No, this narrative was also used to justify Article 231, which, if you don't know, is the notorious war guilt clause in the Treaty of Versailles at the end of the war, which read, and I quote, The Allied and Associated Governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and Associated Governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. End quote. Now, the German delegation at the peace conference only signed this under duress after initially protesting. You know, their initial reaction to this was, this is BS and unfair. We don't deserve all the blame just on our side. But they were completely forced into signing it or else, because basically, despite there having already been a ceasefire in place for months, the British Navy were still conducting their total blockade of Germany. And so even after the ceasefire, German civilians were continuing to die in large numbers because of this, and the British basically told the Germans that if they wanted the blockade to stop, they damn well better sign Article 231. And then the other threat pointed at Germany that compelled their delegation to sign this clause, even though it was unfair and untrue, was that when the ceasefire went into place, Germany had fairly quickly demobilized their army sent their soldiers home, while the Allies had not done so, and the Allies' armies were basically poised on the borders of Germany, ready to go. So the Allies also threatened Germany with total invasion and conquest and occupation if they wouldn't agree to Article 231. Because of these threats, the German delegation agreed to the clause, and by giving their assent to Article 231, that was then, in turn, cited to justify all of the other punitive aspects of the Treaty of Versailles. Things like taking colonies and territories from Germany and forcing them to pay huge war reparations and on and on. In other words, all of the things that led to the massive resentment 
and desire for revenge amongst wide swaths of the German population that would, of course, ultimately lead to the rise of the Nazis and, of course, World War II in Europe. By the way, only a year or two after the Treaty of Versailles was finalized, many top-level Allied leaders were publicly admitting that the whole it-was-all-Germany's-fault narrative was bullshit including such figures as British Prime Minister David Lloyd George and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, of all people. Along with various other current and former high-level leaders from countries like Italy, France, and Russia. And those countries' respective establishment presses, also within a year or two of the treaty being finalized, were mostly backing off from the it-was-all-Germany's-fault narrative. However, Despite the fact that they started to admit the reality pretty quickly once the treaty was done, none of the really punitive planks of the Treaty of Versailles were removed. So, the damage had been done, and the narrative had served its purpose, and a sequel to World War I was made virtually inevitable. Ponsonby, again, writing in the late 20s, already understood that this backing off of this narrative by Allied leaders and media in the years right after the war would not undo the psychological damage that the effects of this narrative had had on the average people, the masses of the Allied nations, particularly people who had personally suffered and fought in or lost loved ones in the war. Ponsonby writes, quote, the great success of this propaganda leaves the impression fixed for a long time on the minds of those who want to justify to themselves their action in supporting the war and of those who have not taken the trouble to follow the subsequent withdrawals and denials. Moreover, the myth is allowed to remain, so far as possible, in the public mind in the shape of fear of quote-unquote unprovoked aggression and becomes the chief, indeed the sole, justification for preparations for another war. End quote. From what I know, serious academic historians, even those who had been blatant propagandists during the war, and many were, and I might even do a separate episode, by the way, just on American academics and the degree to which they were just, you know, with noble, noteworthy exceptions, they were primarily particularly in the so-called social sciences, totally on board with hysterical war propaganda, many of them even before the U.S. got into the war, because, of course, many of them were Anglophiles. But anyway, from what I've seen, serious academic historians abandoned this it-was-all-Germany's-fault narrative pretty quickly once the war was over, and yet it persisted in more kind of popular non-academic history books as well as in textbooks intended for kind of pre-college youth for quite a while after. And I wouldn't be surprised, I haven't looked into it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't still a fair number of K-12 through type textbooks floating around that basically give the it's all Germany's fault World War I happened story. We'll never let the old flag fall Oh, we love it the best of all the end of the world, the 
Now, the next major propaganda narrative that featured prominently in a lot of British propaganda that I want to mention is this notion of Germany as being this uniquely militaristic, aggressive, and expansionist empire with global ambitions. British propaganda constantly rammed home this notion that Germany was somehow different, that they were somehow much more aggressive and militaristic and so forth, in a way that, say, I don't know, the British or French or Russian empires weren't. And once the U.S. got into the war in 1917, U.S.-produced propaganda would echo this narrative. In fact, it would basically echo all of the major British narratives. Now, this might seem plausible to some people because, for sure, Germany in the late 19th and early 20th century was a fairly militaristic state and was an unabashed empire that was looking to expand both economically and territorially, as well as to build up the parts of its military, like its navy, that weren't yet up to the strength of their major rivals, particularly the UK. Okay, so yeah, Germany was a militaristic empire with various ambitions to increase their so-called national greatness, as the neocons would say. But then, you have to have context. Are they really unique in that regard? Remember, Germany's main rivals at the turn of the century, in the years leading up to World War I, right, the same countries that became Germany's main enemies in the war, were Britain, France, and Russia. And I think it's quite fair to say that all three of those countries' governments, all three of the Triple Entente, were, in the early 20th century, in the years leading up to World War I, also, each in their own, you know, kind of unique ways, they were also extremely militaristic, aggressive empires that often matched, and in some categories at least, exceeded Germany in these characteristics of being militaristic expansionist empires with global designs, right? I mean, you've got Russia constantly trying to expand in the late 19th and early 20th century and only stopping when they hit a brick wall, like in the case of the Russo-Japanese War. You've got France being quite aggressive. You've got France, you know, taking over much of North and West Africa and chunks of Southeast Asia, right? What was then called French Indochina and conquering those areas brutally. You've got Britain, who the British government liked to portray themselves as this, like, you know, humble, commercial, peaceful state. And the elite and their propagandists would say, look, you know, we've got a relatively small standing army and blah, 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 blah. But okay, you've got the world's largest empire. You rule over about a quarter of the world's land. And you've got by far the biggest, baddest navy in the world, and you try to control most of the world's oceans. And in addition to that, while the British army prior to World War I wasn't terribly huge by continental standards, they had various colonial forces that all combined together in their various colonies and dominions added up to quite a bit. I mean, just the British Indian army was huge. So you got a real case of pot and kettle if you look at it with an objective eye. So just to give you a little bit of figures to show that Germany was not unique in these regards of being aggressively militaristic and imperial and whatever. And I'm going to give these numbers in pounds, and if memory serves, I think these came from some charts and tables and figures in Stuart Halsey Ross's book. But between 1900 and 1913, 
Germany spent a total of about 214 pounds on its navy. Now, that means nothing if you don't have things to compare it to, right? So, this was only slightly more than France spent on its navy. France, during that same time period, spent 196 pounds on their navy. And Germany's spending of 214 pounds was far, far less than the British spent on their navy from 1900 to 1913. In fact, the British spent more than twice as much during that period on their navy. The British spent a whopping 499 pounds. Oh, sorry, by the way, I should have said million in all these. So Germany spent 214 million pounds, France 196 million pounds, and Britain 499 million pounds. Now, it is fair to point out that Germany spent a lot more on its army than on its navy during that same period. During that same period, they spent about 551 million pounds on their army. But this was less than Russia did during that same time period. During that same period, Russia spent 636 million pounds on its army. And the German budget of 551 million wasn't much more than France, which spent 464 million pounds on its army. Britain did spend a bit less on its army. In fact, even a little bit less than France, only about 390 million pounds, but that was because they were able to rely more on their navy for defense of their islands and their global empire. But when you combine together each country's total spending on both army and navy, Germany's not number one as a military spender in the 13 years leading up to World War I. Britain is. Britain in the 13 years leading up to World War I, combining all of its military spending, army and navy together, was number one in Europe and in the world, spending a grand total of 890 million pounds. Number two was actually Russia, an ally of Britain right before and during World War I. Russia's total was 810 million pounds of military spending. Germany was number three, with about 766 million pounds, and France was number four, with 660 million pounds. And Austria-Hungary, the weakest of the great powers of Europe, was number five, with 328 million pounds. So Britain was number one, Russia number two, Germany was only number three, France was four, Austria was five. Just the British or just the Russians alone spent more on their military before World War I. Which means just Britain and Russia combined together, leaving out France and the other smaller allies, were spending way more than double on their military combined together than Germany was spending on its. And if you add in Austria to Germany, it, they're still being vastly outspent by just Britain and Russia, not even to mention France. And when you total the spending of the three great powers of the Triple Entente, and you compare it to the total military spending of the two great powers of the Central Powers, here's what you find. Russia, France, and Britain, the Triple Entente, spent over 2.3 
billion pounds on their military forces in the 13 years leading up to World War I, while Germany and Austria combined spent less than half that, only slightly over one billion pounds on their militaries. So this idea that Germany was this like uniquely militaristic state in the years leading up to World War I is completely, not only is it bullshit, it's the exact opposite of reality. Furthermore, not only during the same time period were the Entente powers outspending Germany on their militaries, but they were also, each in various places, taking over many more new territories with many more resources in them than what the Germans were taking over during the same time period. The British pacifist intellectual Bertrand Russell, who was one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, British dissident voices during the war, revealed the truth about this in an article that was published in the Atlantic Monthly in July of 1915. Quote, When we come to inquire into Germany's acquisitions, we find that in recent years their gains of territory have been insignificant in comparison with those of England and Russia and approximately equal to those of France. Since 1900, we have gained the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, we have consolidated our position in Egypt, and we have secured a protectorate over southern Persia and its oil wells. The French, meanwhile, have gained about four-fifths of Morocco, and the Russians, though they have lost a small portion of Manchuria, that would have been during the Russo-Japanese War, uh, have gained more than half of Persia. The Germans, in the same period, have gained only a not very valuable colony in West Africa. End quote. So the British propaganda constantly saying, oh, Germany is just this uniquely evil empire. They're not a nice, benevolent, friendly empire like France or Russia or Britain. Those friendly empires that don't engage in militarism or expansionism with global ambitions. No, 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 no. Germany is the only one that's like that. It's complete lunacy. But the propagandists put it out there as a narrative, and enough people believed it that they supported the war and supported all the demonization and blaming of Germany, which again, not only made the war continue grinding on without a negotiated settlement much earlier than happened, but also meant that at the end, because as I often say about propaganda, the people in charge, when they're pushing a bullshit narrative for their purposes today, they're not able to just magically flip a switch when the situation changes, and maybe the country you've been demonizing for years, now it would be a good idea to make a negotiated settlement with them. Well, you can't if you've been whipping up public opinion and demonizing that country for years without facing political consequences, and most politicians are blatant cowards. And politicians who will take a stand against public opinion when they think it's the right thing to do are extremely rare. So all this demonization of Germans and Germany for four years of war is one of the reasons why it was basically politically impossible for the Allied governments at Versailles to make a fair peace deal, even if they had wanted to. And to be fair, most of them didn't want to. Now, we could include in this whole idea of Germany being uniquely evil and aggressive and militaristic and so forth, the demonization of the German people, like as a race. And there was a lot of that going on. And a lot of that was done through atrocity stories, which would either state or imply that this is just something about the Germans, that they're just these barbarians prone to atrocity. So 
some of this will come through in a little bit when I talk about some of the atrocity stories. But also, a lot of this demonization of the German people as a race was done visually as well. So, in the work of people like Raymakers and other less famous artists during World War I who made posters and things that depicted the Germans literally or figuratively as monsters, demons, Huns, barbarians, savages, you name it. That obviously like dovetails with the narrative that there's just something uniquely bad and dangerous about Germany. Now, of course, if you want to have really good war propaganda against your enemy, you don't want to just demonize their country and its kind of overall government and its people. You definitely want to do that. But in particular, it's also helpful if you can fixate on whoever is the highest person, the head of state of their government, and really go to work on them and act like they're a uniquely evil person. Now, there's usually at least some truth to this, because let's be honest. People who become heads of state or heads of government are usually not good people. They're usually bad. But again, as with this whole idea of, well, it was only Germany that was aggressive and militaristic and so forth, the lie comes in in portraying it, well, first off, how bad it is, and also in implying or stating that other leaders aren't this way. So yeah, I would say the Kaiser wasn't a great guy and was, you know, militaristic and aggressive and whatever. But A, it was nowhere near as bad as he was depicted in Allied propaganda. I mean, in Allied propaganda, he's depicted as, like, being worse than Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Genghis Khan combined. With a side order of, like, a serial killer and a Hollywood monster. And the Kaiser was, for all his many faults, nowhere even remotely a tenth as horrific as he was depicted. And then the second part of the lie is the statement or implication that the heads of government and state of Russia, Britain, France, whoever else comes in on the Allied side, are somehow not at all like that mean old Kaiser. He's unique in all of his negative qualities. And it's really striking with the demonization campaign against the Kaiser. When you look at the portrayals of him in a lot of Allied countries' presses prior to the war, and I mean, like, not that long before the war, a lot of British and American, um, I'm less familiar with French and Russian, maybe not so much there, but a lot of British and American establishment figures and establishment press outlets were pretty complimentary about the Kaiser. And then they would suddenly do an about-face, like, literally overnight, once the war broke out. So, for example... As late as June 8th, 1913, basically just a year before the war broke out in Europe, the Kaiser, Wilhelm II of Germany, was celebrating his 25th anniversary as ruler of Germany. And the New York Times, of all places, had a big thing about it that was very positive. In fact, they had a photo of Wilhelm II of Germany on the front page of their Sunday paper, with the headline, and I quote, Kaiser, 25 years a ruler, hailed as peacemaker. Sorry, hailed as chief peacemaker. End quote. The accompanying article then goes on to say that this Kaiser, back in 1890, when he had fired his then-chancellor, 
which was Otto von Bismarck, who, if you don't know, had presided over the unification of Germany and who had continued to serve the first Kaiser Wilhelm until his death. Well, anyway, in 1890, the new young Kaiser fires Bismarck in order to more directly run the government himself. And this New York Times piece from 1913 says that at that time, Wilhelm II had caused many people in the world to worry that he was, quote, a menacing force, a potential warlord, end quote. But in reality, the article goes on to say, quote, Now, he is acclaimed everywhere as the greatest factor for peace that our time can show. It was he who, again and again, threw the weight of his dominating personality, backed by the greatest military organization in the world, an organization built up by himself, into the balance for peace wherever war clouds gathered over Europe. In this 25th year of his rule, eminent men here and abroad are intoning a chorus of praise to him as the greatest peace lord of the world. End quote. The article then went on to praise Wilhelm's government for its domestic policies, too, and argued that Berlin and the other big German cities were much cleaner and nicer and so forth than London or Paris or any of the major European cities in other countries. Various notable individuals sang the Kaiser's praises in this edition of the Times. An English aristocrat named Lord Blythe praised Wilhelm II, called him a great peacemaker, and pointed out that Wilhelm was in fact a grandson of Queen Victoria and the nephew of King Edward of England. Which was true. Andrew Carnegie, who at the time was directing a lot of his philanthropic activity at pacifist causes also praised the Kaiser very lavishly for being a force for peace in the world. And Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler, who was then president of Columbia University and director at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, said that even if he hadn't inherited his position, Wilhelm could easily have been elected as a chief executive by the voters of any modern democratic nation. Further praises in this New York Times piece for Wilhelm came from U.S. ex-presidents William Howard Taft and none other than Theodore Roosevelt. And the latter is particularly interesting because, of course, T.R. would become one of the most vicious warmongers, German haters, and demonizers of the Kaiser once World War I got going, even though back when he'd been the president which was from 1901 to 1909, he generally got along pretty well with the Kaiser and with his government. In fact, the Kaiser had even awarded T.R. some sort of medal during his presidency. And as late as 1913, he's saying nice things about the Kaiser in the New York Times. This article also contained positive statements about the Kaiser from several other British aristocrats, including... Sir Gilbert Parker himself, the guy who, if you'll recall back to earlier in this episode, would, during World War I, run propaganda operations in the U.S. for most of the war. But back in 1913, again, just one year before the war happened, Parker was not yet on his mission to demonize the Kaiser and demonize all things German. So, instead, like everyone else in this New York Times edition... He's singing Wilhelm's praises, saying things like, quote, 
The highest praise that I can offer concerning the Emperor Wilhelm II is that he would have made as good a king of England as our history has provided, and as good a president of the United States as any since George Washington. It was said of the Emperor Wilhelm that he was medieval in his war spirit, but he has proved himself to be a modern keeper of the peace. Under his enlightened tolerance and broad-minded guidance, Germany has become resilient, absorptive, and almost impulsively adaptable. The world owes Emperor Wilhelm a debt of gratitude. He might have found cause to reap advantage from European embroilment of his own making, but he has proved himself among the most civilized, internationally patriotic of rulers. End quote. Parker would, of course, as we've already mentioned a bit before, in the words of Stuart Halsey Ross in his book Propaganda for War, quote, drastically change his official views of Emperor Wilhelm II, Germans, and Germany, end quote. Once the war broke out, and once Parker was put in charge of the British propaganda agency that was to specialize in targeting neutral nations. By the way, as Ross also correctly notes, literally all of the prominent Americans and Brits that are quoted in that time special, praising the Kaiser in 1913, would eventually do a drastic 180 on the Kaiser, as well as on their statements and feelings towards Germany and all things German. And again, it deserves reiterating that ex-President Teddy Roosevelt, out of all these guys, did perhaps the most extreme 180 on the Kaiser in Germany. And he would, very quickly, once the war got going, turn into one of the loudest voices of hatred against the Kaiser and his country, and one of the most extreme haters of Woodrow Wilson for not getting the U.S. into World War I immediately. Lots of alleged stories about the Kaiser saying and doing bad things were pushed in order to demonize him. And while certainly a few may have been the real truth, many were outright lies, and some were facts carefully cherry-picked to give the worst possible impression. They were curated, cherry-picked, and or taken out of context, and with additional facts that might complicate the narrative being deliberately left out, again, in order to give the worst possible impression of the Kaiser. Whenever he would be mentioned in British propaganda, it would always be accompanied by all sorts of negative, colorful trigger words repeated endlessly to make them seem true in the minds of the masses. Words like barbarian, scourge, lunatic, savage, madman, monster, criminal, and many, many more like that constantly would flank any reference to the Kaiser. And in similes and metaphors, he would be portrayed as all sorts of horrible historical people and even monsters. Among the people he was portrayed as or compared to were Judas, Cain, and even Satan himself. Multiple times throughout the war, British outlets, including the establishment's number one mouthpiece, the Times of London, ran a story that had originated in a Dutch newspaper in September of 1914. And this story claimed that in early July of 1914, the Kaiser had held a secret meeting of Central Powers leaders in Potsdam, where they basically conspired to deliberately start the Great War. 
So this story originally comes out in September of 1914, and it gets rehashed, including by the Brits in their propaganda in 1917, and then the British propagandists bring it up again while the Versailles Peace Conference was still in process. Now, this story that the Kaiser had a secret meeting in July of 1914, where he basically deliberately planned to start World War I, was decisively disproven in 1919. But this was, as Arthur Ponsonby points out, quote, after the story had served its purpose, end quote. So here is an actual example of a completely false conspiracy theory. And it's being pushed by governments and by their establishment media mouthpieces acting as propagandists. Those are the really dangerous conspiracy theories. You know, the ones that some crazy guy in his basement believes about having to wear a tinfoil hat, otherwise aliens will take over the world or whatever like that, those are usually not dangerous. The worst that might happen is that guy might go, you know, do some sort of stupid attack on somebody. And that's horrible, right? If he goes and shoots somebody that he thinks is a space alien trying to take over the world, like that sucks. But the amount of damage, and most of the time those people that believe those things are just, you know, harmless nuts in their basement. But even in the rare cases where they do go, you know, hurt somebody or blow something up or whatever, that damage is nothing compared to the damage that conspiracy theories pushed by governments and their media mouthpieces can do. If you don't believe me, look at Iraq War II. The narrative that Saddam Hussein was in cahoots with al-Qaeda and had weapons of mass destruction was a conspiracy theory. And unlike the guy in his basement wearing a tinfoil hat, the conspiracy theory regarding Iraq in 2002-2003 was pushed by respectable politicians and respectable media outlets. And it had consequences of death and destruction on a level that even the nut in his basement who decides to go attack somebody could never even dream of pulling off. Throughout the war, propaganda would often refer to desires and plans on the part of the Allies to try the Kaiser for various crimes and hang him or otherwise execute him. But when push came to shove, in reality, once the war ended and the Kaiser abdicated, the victorious Allies, while they were happy to take everything they could from the nation of Germany, they refrained from any attempt to charge the Kaiser with any crimes. They let him peacefully retire and live out the rest of his life, I think, in Holland. Why? If he really was as evil as the propaganda said, and he really was as guilty of as many things as the propaganda said, why on earth would you not try him and punish him? Because the Allied leaders knew damn well, and had all along, even while they were pushing all the propaganda against the Kaiser, they knew damn well that the Kaiser was not really, at all, what their propaganda was making him out to be, and that probably any investigation and trial that was even remotely competent and fair would conclude that the only crimes the Kaiser was arguably guilty of were crimes that the other belligerent European leaders in World War I, including the Allied ones, were also guilty of. Arthur Ponsonby's rather objective and sober-minded take on the Kaiser overall is that, in reality, quote, he was, and always had been, 
a tinsel figurehead of no account, with neither the courage to make a war nor the power to stop it. End quote. And even Lord Grey, one of the British leaders who bears some of the heaviest responsibility amongst the British elite for helping to bring about the circumstances that led to the war happening and for getting the British into it, even Lord Grey, once the war was over, wrote something to the effect that in reality, if the matter had been left entirely up to the Kaiser himself, the Great War probably wouldn't have even happened. If anything, the Kaiser's biggest fault was that he seemed to say the quiet part out loud, more than leaders of countries like Britain, France, and Russia. Even the BBC, of all places, eventually admitted the truth about the Kaiser. In 1960, BBC Radio actually did a tribute to the Kaiser, in which, in the words of Stuart Halsey Ross, quote, The Kaiser was absolved from the charge of personal war guilt and distinguished British peers who had met him at the height of his power and during his post-war exile testified to his abilities, integrity, and charm. Emphasis was placed on his love of England and his deep attachment to Queen Victoria, his grandmother. End quote. And it said all kinds of nice and positive things about the Kaiser. In addition, the famous British historian F.J.P. Veal wrote in an article about the program that, quote, It is both historically important and politically significant. It is noteworthy both for the facts which it disclosed and for the facts which it discreetly omitted to mention. Quite correctly, it stated that the quote-unquote wicked Kaiser myth was believed without question in Great Britain for ten years after 1918, and that it is still widely believed by the ignorant. But it, meaning the program, made no reference to the fact that this belief was the product of an officially inspired campaign of lies, fabricated on an unprecedented scale. Nevertheless, this broadcast remains memorable, because it demonstrates so strikingly what little reliance can be placed on the durability of even the most unanimous verdicts of contemporary opinion. End quote. And now we'll get to atrocity stories, because these were perhaps the most important elements of British propaganda, both for their domestic population as well as for abroad. As Stuart Halsey Ross puts it, quote, One of the fundamental objectives of wartime propaganda is the portrayal of the enemy as a violator of accepted principles of warfare and humanity. End quote. And as Arthur Ponsonby wrote way back in the late 1920s, quote, War is, in itself, an atrocity. Cruelty and suffering are inherent in it. Deeds of violence and barbarity occur, as everyone knows. Mankind is goaded by authority to indulge every elemental animal passion. But the exaggeration and invention of atrocities soon becomes the main staple of propaganda. End quote. Allied propaganda alleging various German war crimes and atrocities was very important in manipulating American opinion. However, many of these stories were based on nothing more than hearsay, often second or third hand, and 
more than a few of the most high-profile cases were decisively debunked. And even the ones that were true were often exaggerated and had all sorts of embellishments added to them, and often there was a lack of context, both things that might at least partially explain a potential atrocity, as well as lies by omission, meaning... The Allies might have committed atrocities too, but you don't hear about those, so you get the impression only the Germans ever committed any war crimes or atrocities during the entire Great War. So, in the very earliest days of the war, the French government and media began putting out stories about German misdeeds that were often at best highly exaggerated and embellished, and these were then often picked up by U.S. newspapers. And once the British got fully heavily involved in the war on the Western Front, they noticeably amped up the atrocity stories beyond what the French had already been doing. One of the earliest atrocity stories that the British put out was run first in some of their papers, but was also picked up by the New York Times on August 8th, 1914, with the headline, Danish Children Shot, in all caps, and then the subheadline, said to have been executed because they cried, Vive la France! The article claimed that a group of Danish children were riding on a German train, and they suddenly started shouting, Vive la France! At which point, they were all dragged off the train and four of them were shot. Over the next few days, other stories appeared that claimed various incidents of Germans unjustifiably executing people in Belgium and France. Each incident would be seemingly a little bit worse than the last, and by the latter part of August, just a few weeks into the war, the British were claiming outright that the Germans had already completely violated the Hague Treaty rules of warfare, and that the Germans were already guilty of a quote-unquote reversion to barbarism. These claims were in turn run in the New York Times and many other American publications. Stories were published about things like German soldiers supposedly killing civilians and killing enemy soldiers who were trying to surrender or who had already surrendered, all these sorts of things. But stories quickly got more gruesome than just unjustified summary executions and that sort of thing, and before long there were all sorts of stories of horrific forms of killing and mutilation that were supposedly being committed by German soldiers. As early as September 1st, 1914, a story was run in U.S. papers claiming that an American woman living in France had visited some Belgian refugees and encountered a boy whose hands had been cut off by the Germans in order to prevent him from being able to fight against them. And this claim of hands being cut off in various permutations, quickly became a flat-out trope of Allied propaganda, especially British propaganda. One of the many versions of this story that was relentlessly pushed in British propaganda actually had the victim being supposedly a Belgian baby, an actual infant, and this infant had had his hands chopped off by German soldiers. On top of that, the story also claimed that the baby had somehow survived having its hands chopped off and that the baby was being brought around the UK and other countries on a tour. Which is, of course, absurd. As Ponsonby quite rationally points out, quote, 
No one paused to ask how long a baby would live were its hands cut off unless expert surgical aid were at hand to tie up the arteries. The answer being a very few minutes. Everyone wanted to believe this story, and many went so far as to say they had seen the baby. End quote. Now, that last line from Ponsonby is, I think, very important and very perceptive. Everyone wanted to believe the story. They wanted to believe. And it's always easier to con someone if they really want to be conned. Now, this story first appeared in the Times of London in late August 1914. Germans would also be accused of bayonetting Belgian babies and even of nailing one Belgian baby to a door. Not only was no single instance of such things ever proven, and no proof other than the propagandist's own hearsay was ever produced, but in these stories, it was usually implied or even stated outright that not only had this thing happened, but it wasn't like a weird once or twice unusual one-off occurrence. No, 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 no. You were made to think that basically this was like standard operating procedure for German soldiers. Like it maybe might even be in their field manuals or something like that. Another story that was run in a whole bunch of venues, including American ones, was a somewhat less gruesome story, but also involving a Belgian baby. And this is a tale that eventually became known as the Baby of Corbeck Lou. This story was actually fabricated by a British officer and newspaper man who spilled the beans to the New York Times in 1922 about what he'd done. So this is a guy named Captain F.W. Wilson, who had also, before being in the war, had been an editor of the Sunday Times in the UK. So this account was published in the New York Times in 1922, obviously four years after the war ended. So this is the New York Times relating Captain Wilson's story about the baby of Corbeck Lou. Quote, A correspondent of the London Daily Mail, Captain Wilson, found himself in Brussels at the time the war broke out. They telegraphed out that they wanted stories of atrocities. Well, there weren't any atrocities at the time. So then they telegraphed out that they wanted stories of refugees. So I said to myself, that's fine, I won't have to move. There was a little town outside Brussels where one went to get dinner. A very good dinner, too. I heard the Hun had been there. I supposed there must have been a baby there. So I wrote a heart-rending story about the baby of Corbeck Lou being rescued from the Hun in the light of the burning homesteads. The next day, they telegraphed out to me to send the baby along, as they had had about 5,000 letters offering to adopt it. The day after that, baby clothes began to pour into the office. Even Queen Alexandra wired her sympathy and sent some clothes. Well, I couldn't wire back to them that there wasn't a baby. So I finally arranged with the doctor that took care of the refugees that the blessed baby died of some very contagious disease so it wouldn't even have a public burial. And we got Lady Northcliffe to start a crochet with all the baby clothes. End quote. Just completely made up. You know, this is wag the dog type stuff. 
Various atrocity tall tales also alleged that the Germans were crucifying enemy soldiers and even non-combatants. As with many of the propaganda tropes of the war, there were various variations and permutations. But the most common version claimed, and the one that got the most attention, claimed that the crucifixion victim was a Canadian soldier. The definitive version of this story ran in the Times of London in May of 1915, and it claimed that a Canadian officer who had been wounded at Ypres had been crucified by German soldiers. Supposedly, the Germans had used bayonets to nail the Canadian to a wall, and then had slashed his throat and shot him full of bullets. A follow-up story several days later claimed to have found more evidence to back this up, and claimed that the British military high command was looking into it, but said that the victim was actually a Canadian sergeant, and that he may have already been dead at the time he was crucified. However, other than vague claims of kind of second- and third-hand hearsay, the investigations ultimately revealed no evidence that this ever happened. Now, in 1919, after the war was over, a letter was produced and published in The Nation that alleged that the crucified man was actually a private named E. Loader of the Royal West Kent Regiment. So, not a Canadian at all. And I think initially a lot of people bought this, but the letter was soon proven to be fake. No private by that name was even in that regiment, and in fact, that regiment had spent the entire war posted in India. Another tall tale trope that was repeated over and over again in various permutations would be stories about French and Belgian women, sometimes even nuns, being not just raped, but also gruesomely mutilated by German soldiers. And one of the most frequently recycled claims was that these German soldiers had chopped off women's breasts. The earliest specific British report of something like this happening was a story in a newspaper called The Star all the way back in mid-September 1914, only a little over a month into the war. It claimed that a Scottish nurse named Grace Hume, who was serving in Belgium, had her breast chopped off by German soldiers and that she, quote-unquote, died in great agony. The story also claimed to quote from a letter Nurse Hume had written to her sister as she supposedly lay dying, which said, and I quote, Dear Kate, this is to say goodbye. Have not long to live. Hospital has been set on fire. Germans cruel. A man here had his head cut off. My right breast has been taken away. Give my love to... And then there's a bunch of dashes, I guess, supposedly to imply that the name redacted, and the alleged letter ends with, goodbye, Grace, end quote. Two days later, the London Times ran a story that said the whole thing was fake, and that the real Nurse Hume wasn't even in Belgium. The Times story then went on to raise the possibility that that story, the story about Nurse Hume, had actually been fabricated by the Germans so that it would be debunked and thereby cause the Allied public to doubt any future allegations of German war crimes. So think about that, right? A fake story is put out. It's debunked, 
but then the most respectable establishment paper, The Times, says, We think the Germans actually fabricated that fake atrocity story so that it could be debunked, so that basically we'd create a boy-who-cried-wolf situation, or they would create a boy-who-cried-wolf situation, and the public would be more skeptical of atrocity stories in the future. Like, you can't make this up. Now, an investigation followed, and by the end of the month, the Times reported that the whole thing had actually been fabricated, not by Germans, but by the nurse's sister, Kate, who was in Scotland, and to whom the forged letter had been addressed, and that Kate Hume was facing criminal charges for fabricating the story and forging the letters. And in fact, in December, Kate Hume was convicted of doing so. However, despite that, other accusations of German soldiers supposedly lopping off women's breasts appeared in British propaganda and in American reporting that was influenced by the British throughout the course of the war. A whole bunch of alleged atrocities, with little to no evidence to back them up, were actually given the veneer of officiality and respectability. In the early months of the war, an initial report of outlandish alleged German atrocities, which seems to have been probably put together with at least some assistance by Wellington House, was sent by the Belgian government to the U.S. government. This report was so extreme and based on such shady-looking evidence that even Woodrow Wilson seems to have been skeptical of it. But Wellington House published and circulated a 120-page print version of this report in the United States. But that wasn't enough. Wellington House soon got working on its own report of alleged German atrocities in Belgium. This project was headed up by Viscount James Bryce, former British ambassador to the U.S., whom I mentioned earlier. The remainder of the six commissioners in charge of putting together this report, aside from Bryce himself, were also a bunch of super-elite, highly-credentialed members of the British establishment. Four of them were also, like Bryce, titled aristocrats. One was a jurist, two were barristers, two were historians, and one was a Scottish newspaper editor. One member of the commission later said that the only member of the commission that ever seemed to be skeptical of anything was the Scottish newspaper editor, and that he was basically just steamrolled by the other commissioners, and then at the end of all of it, he ended up putting his name on the report anyway. The official name of this committee was the Committee on Alleged German Outrages, and the report that they produced in May of 1915 was officially titled The Report of the Committee on Alleged German Outrages but they're generally respectively referred to as the Bryce Committee and the Bryce Report, for short. By the end of the war, this report had been translated into most major European languages and had been disseminated into many countries, including, of course, the U.S., and it's widely believed to be one of the biggest propaganda coups by Wellington House of the entire war. The report ran over 30,000 words, and was mostly based on over 1,200 depositions that were given by people who claimed to have witnessed some German atrocities, as well as supposedly the report was also based on some diaries that were alleged to have been taken from killed and wounded German soldiers, in which these German soldiers had supposedly documented their own atrocities. Because 
That obviously makes good sense. And seems really plausible. You know, soldiers who commit war crimes and atrocities are generally known for creating a whole bunch of meticulously documented evidence of their crimes. Most of those who testified for the Bryce Report were Belgian refugees who were living in the UK at the time they gave their testimony. Though some of the testimonies did come from British and French soldiers who had seen action at the front. The report itself claimed that these testimonies had all been taken down by, quote, gentlemen of legal knowledge and experience, though of course they had no authority to administer an oath. They were instructed not to lead the witness or make any suggestions to them, and also to impress upon them the necessity for care and precision in giving their evidence, end quote. So, this is testimony that's not even technically under oath, and we're supposed to take the word of a commission that was basically set up by a ministry of propaganda that all of this is accurate and credible, and that there was no manipulating of the witnesses or anything like that. Also, there's no weight at all given to the fact that a Belgian refugee living in the UK has all the motive in the world to exaggerate or even fabricate German atrocity tales, even if they had not witnessed anything close to that. And furthermore, as Stuart Halsey Ross points out, quote, No mention was made that many, if not most, of the barristers sent out to score the British countryside for cooperative refugees could neither understand nor speak Flemish, the language then spoken almost universally by the Belgian people, end quote. The report was published on May 13, 1915, which is very interesting coincidence, because it was published only one week after the sinking of Lusitania, even though the report had supposedly been finished up weeks before that. But anyway, when it was published, the New York Times totally bought it and uncritically reprinted the entire thing under the headline, quote, German atrocities are proved, finds Bryce Committee, end quote. And then a bunch of sensationalist subheadlines followed, quote, Not only individual crimes, but premeditated slaughter in Belgium. Young and old mutilated. Women attacked, children brutally slain, arson and pillage systematic, countenance by officers. Wanton firing on Red Cross and White Flag. Prisoners and wounded shot. Civilians used as shields. Proof that Belgians did not fire on Germans at Louvain. Germans received kindness. End quote. The New York Times also printed their own summary of the report for anyone too lazy to read the full text, in which they again uncritically summarized the Bryce Report's claims in very vivid and biased language. So, here's a sample of some of the tall tales that were alleged by the Bryce Report. In Malines, one witness saw a German soldier cut a woman's breasts after he had murdered her. In Hofstadt, two young women were lying in the backyard of the house. One had her breasts cut off. The other had been attacked. In Semps, the corpse of a man with his legs cut off, who was partly bound, was seen by another witness who also saw a girl of 17 dressed 
only in a camise and in great distress. She alleged she had been dragged into a field, stripped naked and violated. In Eldwit, a man's naked body was tied up to a ring in the wall in the backyard of a house. He was dead, and his corpse was mutilated in a manner too horrible to record. In Bort Mirbeck, a German soldier was seen to fire three times at a little girl of five years old. Having failed to hit her, he subsequently bayoneted her. In Hecht, several children had been murdered. One of two or three years old had been nailed to the door of a farmhouse by its hands and feet, a crime which seems almost incredible, but the evidence for which we feel bound to accept. In Epigen, the dead body of a child at two was seen pinned to the ground with a German lance. End quote. And I'm sure I mispronounced most, if not all, of those Belgian cities and towns, but I don't really speak French, and I even more so don't speak Flemish, so if you're a Belgian listening to this, I beg your pardon on my pronunciation. Aside from detailing countless German atrocities, the Bryce Report also claimed that there were no civilian irregulars or guerrillas in Belgium who were attacking German soldiers. Now, the Germans had been claiming that whatever reprisals against civilians actually did occur were only in response to Belgian civilian guerrillas attacking them, the Germans, in violation of the existing rules of warfare at the time. But the Bryce Report stated, quote, The Commission of Inquiry, after minute inquiry, has not succeeded in discovering a single case which displays the participation of the civil population in hostilities. End quote. Now, in reality, there's far more credible evidence that there were Belgian civilians that attacked German soldiers than there is that German soldiers were committing some of the more gruesome things that were being alleged against them, like chopping off women's breasts, nailing children to the wall, like all this sort of crazy stuff. The New York Times' commentary on the report also made sure to tout the credentials, the prestige, and the credibility of all the great men on the Bryce Commission. However, as Stuart Halsey-Ross points out, not a single member of the commission had visited Belgium during the war. And none of them had even personally spoken to any of the witnesses either. Or I should say, alleged witnesses, because who knows how many, if any of them, were even real people. None of the alleged witnesses' names were revealed in the report, supposedly to protect any of their relatives who might still be in Belgium. But there's reason to doubt that that's the reality. Because regarding the actual primary source documents, the depositions, which, remember, were not even sworn under oath, the actual depositions on which the Bryce Report was supposedly based, according to the report itself, were being held under wraps by the British Home Office, but, said the report, these depositions would be revealed to the public once the war was over. However, those depositions were never made available to the public, if they ever even existed at all. The German government quickly cobbled together a counter-report, which is known as the White Book of 1915. Unlike with the Bryce report, the Germans claimed that all the testimony in their report actually was obtained under oath. Now, 
Whether that's true or not, who the hell knows? All governments have infinite incentives to lie during wartime. My claim in this episode is never that the German government didn't lie and propagandize during World War I. They clearly did, as did every government who participated in the war. My argument is simply that the British did it far more in amount and far better in kind of slickness and effectiveness, particularly with regard to American opinion. In their report, the Germans claimed that whatever harsh measures were happening in Belgium were fully justified by and were in retaliation against Belgian civilians who had first broken the rules of civilized warfare as outlined in international law. And of course, they denied and disputed and attempted to debunk many of the specific stories in the Bryce Report, particularly the really outlandish and gruesome ones. But they were already on the defensive in the propaganda war. The British were on offense almost all the time. The Germans were more often on defense. Also, by the way, I should point out that the British government was able to effectively keep knowledge of this German report from the American public. And so, unlike the Bryce Report, which was blasted to the U.S. public through such outlets as the New York Times, by contrast with that, almost no Americans had access to or even knowledge of this German report until the war was over. By the way, France also put out its own report of alleged German war crimes, which, of course, thanks to Wellington House, made it to the American public, translated into English, and with an introduction added by Wellington House. This translation of the French report was touted by the New York Times in January of 1916 as offering definitive proof of German war crimes. Wellington House's introduction to the French report claimed that this report provided the ultimate proof that was needed to justify a policy of no negotiation, and instead that this report showed that the Allies needed to bring about the virtual destruction of the existing German state. They said that the information contained in this report, quote, completely justifies the Allies in their proclaimed determination not to sheathe the sword nor to listen to any proposals of mediation until the power of German militarism shall have been finally overthrown. Until she is utterly broken and repentant, there can be no safety for the lives and property of non-combatants by land or by sea. End quote. Hmm alleged outlandish-sounding war crimes being used as an argument in favor of a policy of no negotiations, only absolute victory and the destruction of the enemy's regime. Where have we heard this sort of thing more recently? Now, a handful of American journalists who were personally covering the Western Front attempted, based on their own first-hand observations and investigations, to debunk a lot of what was in the British and French reports, but they were largely drowned out by Wellington House and by the pro-British American establishment newspapers. Believe it or not, George Creel, who, once the U.S. officially entered the war, would be appointed by Woodrow Wilson to lead the American Propaganda-slash-Censorship Bureau, known as the Committee on Public Information, 
and much more to come about Creel and that committee in future parts of this series, of course. But anyway, even Creel, who was a shameless and sensationalistic propagandist in many ways, pointed out many years after the war that his committee, once it was up and running, never officially endorsed or helped to circulate the Bryce Report in the U.S., Creel said that the tales in the Bryce Report were so outlandish that it caused many people to not believe later, less kind of over-the-top stories about alleged German misdeeds. But the fact that the CPI, once it was brought into existence, did not get behind the Bryce Report ended up not mattering to the report's impact on American opinion at all. Because by the time the CPI was created, Wellington House had already with the help of friendly U.S. outlets like the New York Times, been blasting the Bryce Report into the American mind for nearly two years. Now, there's one more specific atrocity tale from the Western Front that British propaganda really, really made a big deal out of that I want to mention. And this one actually did happen. Even though, if you look at it objectively, with a coldly kind of legalistic eye. There's a pretty strong case to be made that it technically wasn't really a war crime or atrocity at all. And that was the execution by the Germans of a 49-year-old British nurse named Edith Cavell. Or Cavell, I'm not sure where to put the emphasis on the syllable. But I'll go with Cavell. Edith Cavell executed by the Germans in 1915. Now, who was Edith Cavell? Well, prior to World War I, Cavell had been living and working in Belgium for a number of years at teaching hospitals, basically training new nurses. When Belgium was invaded, she stopped teaching to go work at a hospital in Belgium treating wounded soldiers, and supposedly, to her credit if it's true, she would help wounded soldiers of both sides equally, not just Allied soldiers. However, she quickly got involved in setting up and running an operation to help wounded Allied POWs escape, occupied Belgium via the Netherlands, and then to get back to their home countries, be it Britain or France. Supposedly, she helped over 200 soldiers to escape in this way. When the German occupiers discovered this, Nurse Cavell was arrested under martial law, which the German army had declared in occupied Belgium. She was charged with helping Allied soldiers to escape, which she admitted to having done. She was tried by a German military tribunal, convicted, and on October 12, 1915, she was executed by a firing squad. Despite the fact that the U.S. ambassador to Belgium had asked for mercy on her behalf. By the way, when Kaiser Wilhelm, that alleged satanic demon, found out about Cavell being executed, he was very angry that it had been done. But the truth about the Kaiser was that from the moment that Germany went to war, he really lost a lot of his authority to the German military brass. And really, he continued to lose more and more power to the military the longer the war went on. But of course, as we've covered, you wouldn't know that based on all the propaganda that focused on demonizing him. Now, Cavell's conviction was done according to existing German military law that had been on their books for a long time, even before the war. What she had done was a crime that was punishable by life in prison during peacetime and by the death penalty during wartime. 
the story of Edith Cavell got all kinds of international attention, thanks to British propaganda, and it definitely was blasted into the U.S. and resonated with a lot of Americans. It was probably second only to the sinking of Lusitania, which I'll get to shortly. As far as specific atrocities or alleged atrocities in grabbing U.S. opinion. The Cavell story was, as Stuart Halsey Ross writes, quote, every propagandist dream come true, end quote. Now, according to legend, on the night before her execution, Nurse Cavell said, quote, this I would say, standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone, end quote. Ross believes that this statement was probably cooked up by Wellington House after the fact, and, you know, you can't say for sure, but I'm inclined to agree. If I had to put money on it, that's what I would put money on. Because statements like this, that are so melodramatic-sounding, that are attributed to people, usually end up being false, or at least highly suspect. They're just too on the nose. But the gullible public in the UK, in allied countries, and in many neutral countries like the US, they lapped the story up uncritically. Shortly after Cavell's execution, the New York Times published a take on it that added a little bit of nuance and complexity that didn't 100% parrot the Wellington House line, but that ultimately did come down pretty hard against the Germans. An editorial in the New York Times on October 23rd pointed out, correctly, that Cavell had broken the law in a war zone. And it also pointed out that the United States had similar laws on its books in its military legal system. Including an order from 1863 from during the American Civil War which explicitly said, quote, The law of war like the criminal law regarding other offenses, makes no distinction on account of difference of sex concerning the spy, the war traitor, or the war rebel, end quote. But then, this same editorial goes on to link this execution to other alleged German misdeeds and characterize Cavell's execution as just the latest illustration of, quote, the stern blind German devotion to the ruthless ideas of militarism and state power, end quote. And it said that it was because of things like this that, quote, the civilized world has turned against Germany, unsparingly condemns, detests the ideals she seeks to obtain by such inhuman practices, and hopes and fervently prays for defeat in arms lest, by her triumph, her unspeakably horrible ideals should come back into dominance and the hands upon the clock of civilization be turned back a thousand years, end quote. So yeah, they start off on a note of complexity and ambiguity to kind of lull you in, to lower your defenses, and then BAM! They hit you with a super hyperbolic, over-the-top, crazy message. The message that if Germany wins this war, civilization will be set back a thousand years. Which, you know, might as well have been written in Wellington House. On October 31st, 1915, the New York Times ran an article about the Edith Cavell case 
that was written by James M. Beck, who was a staunchly pro-Allied reporter. And this article took up the entire first three pages of the paper. In it, Beck argued that the execution of Cavell, again, a British nurse busted for breaking martial law in an occupied war zone, was actually a direct insult to the entire United States of America as a nation because of the fact that the U.S. ambassador to Belgium had asked for mercy for her and the Germans had not granted it. Beck argued that Cavell's execution was just as much of America's business as was the sinking of the Lusitania, and he kind of specifically and hyperbolically addressed the women of America, saying, quote, Will you not honor the memory of this martyr of your sex? Will you not carry on in her name and for her memory those sacred ministrations of mercy which were her life work? End quote. Now, not surprisingly for its part, Wellington House made the absolute most they could out of Cavell's death, cranking out news reports, pamphlets, posters, books, and more, of course, giving an extremely sensationalized version of her story. And they made sure that all of this made it into the U.S., again, usually laundering it through American outlets, and it was generally lapped up uncritically. For example, even the American Journal of Nursing of all publications chimed in on it. They published a version of Cavell's death which said that she refused to wear a blindfold at her execution, but then, because she's a frail, fragile woman, she fainted and fell down in front of the firing squad. So, you know, notice the Victorian stereotype of a woman, she's got to be the damsel in distress who just can't take it. And then supposedly, there's Nurse Cavell fainted on the ground, and a German officer just walks up to her and coldly kills her with his pistol. Now, the story is BS, but again, lots of people just believed it. Kind of like how lots of people in the U.S. have just, without even any critical thought, believed all the wildest propaganda coming out of Ukraine the past few months. Just saying. British propaganda continued to use Cavell and her story throughout the war. And once the U.S. got into the war, an American film was actually made, which came out in 1918, titled The Cavell Case. I've seen an advertisement for this film that I guess was aimed at movie theater owners, designed to persuade them to show the film. And the ad said, quote, if you are 100% American, you will be proud to show your patrons Select Pictures Great Special, The Cavell Case, the undying record of the woman the Germans shot. Now, a few points I'll make about this whole case. First, the way that Allied propaganda handled this case reflects and deliberately panders to all the notions about women and sex and gender at the time. And what I mean is, if Cavell had been, say, a male doctor, rather than a female nurse, but had been doing and was convicted of doing the exact same thing, he would also have been executed. But nobody likely would have noticed or cared very much, and British propagandists probably wouldn't have bothered to make a big deal about that, because it wouldn't have resonated with the public, because most people at the time would have just seen it for what it was 
essentially an act of espionage or sabotage by someone whose only role in a war zone was supposed to be rendering medical aid to wounded soldiers. In other words, if Cavell had been a man, if they even heard about it at all, I think most people's reaction in neutral countries like the U.S. would have been not much more than a shrug. You know, kind of, well, that's sad the doctor got killed, but hey, he chose to take the risks of smuggling wounded POWs out of an active war zone where martial law had been declared, so, you know, he knowingly took those risks and he got caught. But since Cavill was a woman, there was a very strong double standard in most people's minds. By the way, as evidence to back up my counterfactual, Cavell didn't operate alone. Five others were also convicted and executed as part of the same German bust. But no one ever heard about the other five. Because the other five were male. And their executions wouldn't have made as good of propaganda fodder. Second point I'll make. I think the Germans probably did have the preponderance of international legal precedent in wartime on their side in this case, but as usual, in their rather kind of autistic, legalistic, engineer mindset sort of way, the Germans failed to realize that even if the law was technically on their side, it would be what we would call today bad optics to execute Cavell. And they should have realized that Allied, and especially British, propaganda would turn into a war crime and atrocity the execution of Cavell in the eyes of allied and neutral public opinion, even if it technically wasn't a war crime or atrocity. Third and final point I'll make on Cavell. In the minds of most allied civilians, as well as people in neutral countries like the U.S. that were on the receiving end of British propaganda, Edith Cavell would have been seen as a unique thing. Why, a woman getting tried and executed for, you know, espionage, sabotage-type activities in a war zone. For most of the public and allied and neutral nations, the Cavell case would have been the only instance of this happening that they had ever heard of during this entire war. And so, their natural conclusion would have been something like, well, only the evil barbarian Germans would kill a woman. However, over the course of the war, the French tried and executed no fewer than nine women for various espionage and sabotage-type activities in their zones of the war. Some of whom, by the way, were busted for doing the exact same thing that Edith Cavell had been doing. Also, later in the war, in 1917, the French actually executed a famous Dutch female dancer named Matahari for espionage. And I don't think that the Allied or American public even heard about this at the time. So, in other words, because the British had such hegemony on the flow of information about the war into the U.S., as far as the Americans were concerned, only the mean old Germans would execute a woman. So, in other words, this is a classic case of lying by omission. Americans had no idea that the French did the exact same thing in the same circumstances. And, you know, had they known this, it would have given them a very different overall take on the war. It would have given them a very different view of who, if anybody, were really the bad guys 
if they had known the full truth, if they had known that the French also executed women for these sorts of activities. After the war, many prominent Brits admitted that Cavell had been fairly and justly dealt with based on what she had done and according to the commonly accepted laws of war at the time, including at least one member of parliament, a guy named Duff Cooper, who was a conservative MP and an historian. I've actually read his biography of the French statesman Talleyrand, by the way. Duff Cooper, in the 1930s, said, quote, If ever a woman was justly executed according to the rules of warfare, Nurse Cavell was. End quote. Now, not all American reporters in Europe during the war were either witting or unwitting collaborators with British propagandists. There were some honest, independent reporters trying to be objective who tried to debunk or cast doubt on some of these atrocity stories. But they were generally silenced, censored, or drowned out by the propagandists. And even when such honest individuals tried to send reports back to the States, they faced the hurdle of the British government monopolizing all of the transatlantic telegraph communications. So, just one example I'll point out of American reporters, at least some American reporters, trying to get the truth back to the States. Early in the war, in September 1914, when the first batches of propaganda stories about atrocities were starting to reach an American audience, a group of five American reporters who were covering the war and who represented the Associated Press, as well as some of the biggest newspapers in the U.S., sent a radio message from Berlin to the States saying that they had done investigations and these crazy atrocity stories appeared to be BS. And believe it or not, this message was actually printed in the New York Times. Quote, In spirit we unite in rendering German atrocities groundless so far as we are able to. After spending two weeks with and accompanying the troops upward of a hundred miles, we were unable to report a single instance unprovoked. We are also unable to confirm rumors of mistreatment of prisoners or of non-combatants with the German columns. Numerous investigated rumors proved groundless. Everywhere, we have seen Germans paying for purchases and respecting property rights, as well as according civilians every consideration. The discipline of the German soldiers is excellent, as we observed. To the truth of these statements, we pledge our professional and personal word. End quote. And over the next few years, occasionally, contrarian takes by honest investigators did make it into the U.S. But as the war went on, these takes got increasingly less coverage, and they were drowned out by British propaganda. And of course, once the U.S. officially entered the war in April of 1917, such reporting would pretty much cease, because it became physically and legally dangerous to even try to debunk war propaganda at that point in the U.S. While I'm sure the occasional individual instance of German soldiers doing bad things they shouldn't have to civilians and to captured and wounded enemy soldiers did occur, I also have no doubt that A. Those things were not standard operating procedures in the German army during this war. B. The war crimes and atrocities that did occur were never as gruesome and theatrical as the Allied propaganda claimed. And C. There's no doubt 
that there were genuine instances of soldiers of all of the Allied armies also committing various war crimes and atrocities. Stuart Halsey Ross evaluates and gives some context on the reality of German misdeeds in this war, as opposed to British and Allied propaganda, as follows, quote, Undoubtedly, individual vicious acts were committed by German soldiers as they fought their way through Belgium, especially in response to resistance by the francs tireurs which is a French term for a guerrilla, by the way. Back to Ross. Direct reprisals against these civilian guerrillas, including hostage-taking and shooting, were also organized by the highly disciplined German army as part of a campaign of Schrecklichkeit, frightfulness. That was a concept of the 19th century Prussian military strategist, Karl von Clausewitz. However, as a result, over 5,000 Belgian civilians were estimated to have been killed by the Germans in 1914. However, this estimate by a Belgian historian ten years after the war did not distinguish between those civilians killed unintentionally by German artillery, for example, and those executed, end quote. So, you know, who knows if that estimate is accurate or not, but even if it is, it's not differentiating between civilians killed by the Germans on purpose, you know, as reprisals and revenge and whatever, versus those who just died as the inevitable collateral damage of having a war happening in your area. Back to Ross, quote, For perceived military necessity, or less often for revenge, every army sometimes shoots its prisoners, the wounded included. Every army sometimes pillages and rapes. Because a naval commander's first priority is always the safety of his ship and crew, and sometimes for revenge, some submarine commanders of every navy have sometimes fired on lifeboats, just as some surface ship captains have sometimes left enemy sailors to drown. But the calculated fiendishness and depravity of German soldiers and sailors and their officers detailed in the well-publicized reports by the Allies that so inflamed American opinion were, in fact, the calculated and depraved lies of British propagandists. That Americans, not yet belligerents, swallow these preposterous tales is a measure of the power of propaganda. End quote. Also, by the way, something that deserves to be mentioned in terms of context and in terms of killing civilians and so forth, as Leading American historian of the early 20th century, Harry Elmer Barnes, rightly pointed out after World War I, quote, The one true and perfectly authenticated atrocity in the World War, and the situation which produced by far the greatest suffering and death among the civilian population, was the illegal blockade of Germany, continued for many months after the armistice. It could be justified only on the ground of weakening Germany and lessening future German competition through the death of some 800,000 German women and children. End quote. Yes, the British blockade on Germany killed hundreds of thousands of German civilians, far more than anybody has ever alleged were killed in Belgium. But nobody in the U.S. was hearing about that at the time. And so powerful is the after-effects of British propaganda that probably most Americans walking around today, even those who know a little bit about World War I, probably have no clue that the illegal British starvation blockade against Germany in the war killed hundreds of thousands, 
of German civilians. That's how you lie by omission. A particularly important kind of subgenre of atrocity stories for an American audience in particular were, of course, the U-boat warfare campaign of the German Navy and the sinking of the Lusitania in particular. Before we mention a little bit about the German U-boat blockade of the British Isles, we have to mention the British blockade against Germany, which actually is what provoked the German U-boat blockade. So, immediately at the outbreak of war in August of 1914, as they were also destroying the German telegraph cables to the U.S., Britain imposed a total blockade on Germany, even though this violated international law in several different ways. And some of these international law precedents about naval warfare went back to the 16 and 1700s. So, blockades were only supposed to keep out quote-unquote contraband, which was generally very narrowly defined as weapons and ammunition, from getting to a country that you were at war with. And neutral ships, in particular, were supposed to be respected, and if you were imposing a naval blockade on an enemy country during wartime, and a neutral flagship was heading into that country's ports, you could kind of pull it over, so to speak, you know, order it to heave to. You could then have, you know, sailors or marines from your ship search the neutral flagship, make sure it is actually a neutral ship, make sure it's not carrying contraband, but if it is in fact a neutral ship and it is in fact not carrying any war material, then you're supposed to let it go on its way. So if it's full of food, even if it's full of raw materials that could potentially be made into weaponry, it was supposed to be left alone. And lastly, naval blockades were supposed to be conducted by surface vessels only, not by submarines, unless they were, you know, operating at the surface, and not by underwater mines, which were in existence by World War I. Well, the British blockade of Germany was not just carried out by the surface ships of the vast Royal Navy, but also by underwater mines. The British mined the hell out of the North Sea, which is the part of the Atlantic Ocean, right adjacent to Germany. And then the British had safe maps, or maps of safe paths, I should say, through their underwater minefields, so they could navigate safely through the North Sea, but nobody else could without risking bumping into a mine and having their ship go down. Not only did the British conduct some of their blockading, or a lot of their blockading, through the use of underwater mines, which of course are, you know, stupid or dumb, so to speak, where, you know, if a boat bumps into an underwater mine, the mine blows up. It doesn't know whether the boat is an enemy warship, is an enemy cargo ship full of guns and ammunition, or a neutral country's fishing boat. But in addition to that, the surface ships conducting the British blockade also would stop all ships, including neutral ships and ships carrying things such as food or medicine from getting through to Germany. Over the course of the war, because of this blockade, at least a half a million German civilians are believed to have died due to things like diseases and malnutrition directly caused by the effects of the blockade. 
And some estimates and studies have said that the number of German civilians killed by the British blockade over the course of World War I in its aftermath may have been as high as around three quarters of a million. Also, by the way, approximately 100,000 additional German civilians are estimated to have died of the blockade's effects after the armistice went into place in November of 1918, because the British kept their blockade going for quite a while after the armistice. In fact, they kept their blockade in place against Germany until the German delegation signed the final version of the Treaty of Versailles, which wasn't done until June of 1919. So they kept starving Germany for over seven months after the armistice or the ceasefire went into place. And obviously, they did it in order to keep leverage over the Germans during the negotiations. Studies conducted by economists in the early 21st century using detailed height and weight data compiled by German schools between 1914 and 1924, you know, documents that only recently got unearthed. These show very clearly that German children suffered from severe malnutrition during this period, basically from the beginning of World War I into the early 1920s. And the data also shows, by the way, as is always the case, with things like blockades and embargoes, that the poor were the hardest hit. So children suffered disproportionately from the British blockade, and poor children suffered the most. Now, of course, the general public in the U.S. knew nothing or virtually nothing about this horrific death toll, and they probably didn't even know the details of exactly how the British were conducting their blockade and the various ways in which that was a violation of existing international precedent. But of course, Americans would hear in gory detail about every single Belgian or French civilian that died, and many fictional ones that never, you know, never even existed or never even died as well. But the reality is that even though we don't have exact numbers for everything, the evidence is overwhelming that the German civilian death toll in World War I was orders of magnitude higher than the Belgian one. But since, A, those people died in kind of a low-key, quiet way of starvation and disease, and B, as we've already covered extensively, the British controlled the narrative and the information reaching the U.S., and, of course, once the U.S. got into the war, the American propaganda and censorship cranked up heavily in this way as well. As a result of all this, the American public was given the impression that only Allied civilians were suffering and dying in this war. And again, this is a case of lying by omission. You hear about all the French and Belgian civilians dying, and then some, but you aren't even really aware that any German civilians are dying because of the blockade. And so you get a warped narrative that ultimately is not only false, but the opposite of what was really happening. Instead, thanks to Wellington House and after April 1917, thanks to the United States' own propaganda bureau, the Committee on Public Information, Americans were constantly being bombarded with propaganda tales of evil German U-boats, not just attacking merchant ships without warning, but doing sadistic things like firing on lifeboats and that kind of thing. Every effort was made to not only cover, but to drastically exaggerate the actions of the U-boats, and to characterize this as kind of a uniquely evil type of war. 
And again, thanks to the British hegemony over the information about the war reaching the U.S., almost no one in America really understood the British blockade, the fact that the British had started violating the rules of war on the high seas first, or that German civilians, including children, were dying from the blockade by the tens and eventually by the hundreds of thousands. The crews of Allied and neutral merchant ships hit by U-boats were, as Chomsky would put it, worthy victims. While the German civilians, even if they were children, even if they were poor children, were unworthy victims. Now, when the British started slapping their total blockade on Germany early in the war, what was the American response? Well, almost everybody in the Wilson administration was staunchly pro-British, although most of them were keeping it quiet because the official stance of Wilson was, of course, that the U.S. was going to try and be neutral and stay out of the war. The only high-level exception was Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, who took the idea of America being neutral and staying out of the war seriously. And when you look at the internal workings of the Wilson administration in 1914 and 1915, it's like William Jennings Bryan is the only one kind of not in on the joke. Like, the entire rest of the Wilson administration, at least at the high levels, is like all, you know, doing this BS dance of in public saying, oh, we're trying so hard to stay out of this thing, we're not taking sides, we're, you know, not playing favorites, we're neutral, whatever. And William Jennings Bryan is like the only guy who, behind closed doors, and in his own mind and in his own heart, actually means it. So the Wilson administration did give some token protests, some kind of, you know, half-hearted, half-assed, hey, come on, Brits, you ought not be doing this, your blockade is violating the rules. And the British responded by basically saying, yeah, well, we're going to do it anyway. And in fact, in, um, I think it was one of their responses to the Wilson administration protesting against their blockade, the British pointed out rightly that the blockade that Lincoln had put on the South during the Civil War had also violated the rules of naval warfare and had also, you know, been a total blockade, even keeping out things like food and medicine and not really respecting neutral ships in the way it should have, and so forth. So the British started breaking the rules of warfare on the seas first, and only after a while did the Germans respond by also doing things on the high seas that broke established rules. Germany didn't unleash unrestricted U-boat warfare around the British Isles until February of 1915, which was six months after the British had begun their illegal total blockade against Germany in the North Sea. So they were just, you know, reciprocating, and they didn't even do it for six months. And before the Germans unleashed the U-boats in the British Isles, they publicly announced, so that everybody, including, you know, neutral merchant ships, would have fair warning, they publicly announced that they were declaring the waters around the British Isles a war zone, which is exactly what the British had done at the start of their blockade six months earlier in the North Sea. And in their announcement, the Germans explicitly said they were doing this as a response, as a retaliation to the British having already abandoned international law on the high seas. And the Wilson administration's response to the German illegal blockade, U-boat blockade, was very different. It was much more belligerent, much, much less, you know, half-hearted kind of token protest. 
So the British do an illegal blockade. The Wilson administration is like, come on, guys, you ought not be doing that. What? You're going to do it anyway? Oh, oh, well, I guess, you know, we tried. Whereas the Germans do what also was technically an illegal blockade. And the Wilson administration is like, you evil barbarian bastards. How dare you be enemies of human civilization? And again, to be clear, the German U-boat blockade also violated previous international law, but the point is, they only did it in retaliation six months after the British had been doing it to them. Submarines were still a relatively new development as of World War I, especially effective submarines. Some of you may know the Confederates experimented with some very primitive submarines in the Civil War, but they were really, really not effective. So, World War I was the first time that relatively effective submarines were used in warfare on a large scale. And because of that, what international law there was regarding submarines had largely not yet been, you know, tested or refined in practice. And as a result, the rules regarding how submarines were supposed to behave in warfare were really not much different from the rules that Europeans had developed you know, over the centuries for surface ships. And these rules were referred to as cruiser rules. Under cruiser rules, warships enforcing a blockade were supposed to, as I kind of mentioned earlier, they were supposed to stop enemy or neutral merchant ships and inspect them to verify who and what they were, what they were carrying, and so forth. And they had to do this before they were legally allowed to seize the ship or fire on the ship or whatever. However, these rules also stated that if a merchant ship either tried to fight when, you know, your warship tries to pull it over on the high seas, so to speak, if the merchant ship tries to fight, or if it tries to flee rather than submitting to being inspected, at that point they forfeited their status as non-combatants and you could attack them. The problem was, in practice, while surface ships might be able to do this, there was no realistic way that submarines could operate in this manner. Submarines were relatively small, with small crews, and they didn't really have the extra manpower to do things like conduct a boarding and inspection party or whatever. And on top of that, once submarines surfaced, they were extremely vulnerable to either being fired at with weapons or to being rammed. They were relatively small and fragile, even compared to most merchant vessels. Now, at the start of the U-boat campaign, the Germans actually did make an effort to give targeted vessels some sort of warning. You know, they would fire warning shots and try to communicate in various ways. Sometimes they would even send some men on a boat to try and, you know, parlay with the target ship. And basically, if they decided to sink a ship... They would try to give the crew of that ship a chance, some sort of warning and notice, to evacuate into lifeboats before they sunk the vessel. But this didn't last long. And it didn't last long because of actions by the British Admiralty, or the British Navy. Early in World War I, the First Lord of the Admiralty, the head of the British Navy, was none other than Winston Churchill. And when the Germans started to do their U-boat campaign and initially were at least trying to follow some of the, the cruiser rules, Churchill quickly instituted countermeasures, which are summed up by Stuart Halsey Ross as follows, quote, Among the new procedures, 
merchant captains must disregard a surface U-boat's order to heave to and must engage the enemy by ramming or with gunfire. Under no circumstances must a ship surrender to a U-boat. It was mandatory for captains immediately to radio their positions as soon as attacked by submarines. In submarine waters, ships were to fly the flag of a neutral country. Unofficially, the flag to fly was the Stars and Stripes. Or no flag at all. Names and ports of registry on hulls were to be painted over. End quote. Now these things, taken together, made it almost suicidal for German U-boats to surface and try and give a warning and try and communicate, verify whose ship it was, whether or not it was military or civilian, what it was carrying in the cargo holds, etc., before attacking. And inevitably, it drastically increased the number of neutral ships that would be attacked, and it would also increase the number of British merchant vessels that would be attacked with no warning. And Churchill knew this. Churchill was willing to sacrifice both British and neutral merchant sailors as pawns in his game, which was always focused on bringing the U.S. into the war at all costs. And there's every reason to believe that Churchill did this deliberately, knowing full well that it would cause U-boats to simply attack ships without warning and without a whole lot of effort to verify whose ships they were, again, in order to increase the instances of U-boats sinking neutral ships, especially American ones. In fact, he later wrote, quote, the first British counter-move made on my responsibility was to deter the U-boat from surface attack. The submerged U-boat had to rely increasingly on underwater attack and thus ran the greater risk of mistaking neutral for British ships and of drowning neutral crews and thus embroiling Germany with other great powers, end quote. Which meant, of course, first and foremost, the U.S. In other words, Churchill admitted that he did the things that he did at the Admiralty deliberately to cause U-boats to sink more neutral ships and kill more neutral sailors in order to increase the likelihood of neutral countries, the most important of which, of course, was always the U.S., to increase the likelihood of them being provoked into war against the Germans. And then, of course, Americans getting the stories of all this through Wellington House, they're not getting the context, they're not getting any of this inside information, all they're getting is, oh my god, these evil German bastards are using this sneaky new weapon of war to just fire without warning on civilian merchant ships, even neutral ones. What evil monsters hitting below the belt? Now, the constant stream of propaganda stories about German U-boats doing nasty things on the high seas, some of which were real, but without proper context, and some of which were, you know, exaggerated or flat out made up. You know, those were a steady drip, drip, drip of propaganda nudging Americans to be more pro-British and anti-German. But the big one was, of course, the Lusitania. Now, there's so much shady stuff with the Lusitania that I could probably do a whole standalone multi-hour episode just on the Lusitania. There are entire books about all the shady shit that surrounds the Lusitania and its sinking. So I'm not going to go through all that in detail here for the sake of time. But 
you got to talk about it a little bit before you talk about, you know, the way in which propaganda from the British spun the story and warped the story and added all kinds of things to the story that weren't even true. So, on May 7th, 1915, the Cunard liner RMS Lusitania was off the coast of Ireland, within the German-declared war zone around the British Isles, en route from New York City to Liverpool, England, when German U-boat U-20 attacked it with one torpedo. Now, one torpedo that gets a good hit is enough to sink a ship even as big as Lusitania, but when the torpedo hit, a bunch of secondary explosions went off in the ship. And as a result, this gigantic ship went down much, much more quickly than a ship like this normally would have taken to sink. And it supposedly sank in under 20 minutes. Which is astonishingly fast for a ship that big hit by one torpedo. By contrast, the Titanic took more than two and a half hours to go all the way under the water after it hit the iceberg. Now, of the almost 2,000 souls aboard the ship, counting passengers and crew, almost 1,200 perished, of whom 123 were Americans, so, you know, about 10% of those who died. And there's a pretty big amount of evidence that Winston Churchill, who again was head of the British Admiralty in the first few years of the war, until he resigned after the disaster of the Gallipoli campaign, which he was the main architect of, there's plenty of evidence that Winston Churchill deliberately exposed the Lusitania to danger in order to try and get the U.S. into the war. You know, aside from just what I was quoting from him a few minutes ago, that he ordered merchant ships to try to attack or ram or evade U-boats in order to deliberately cause U-boats to start attacking neutral ships without warning. Now, the ship, the Lusitania, was supposedly, nominally, a privately owned passenger liner owned by the Cunard Company. But, in reality, the British Navy had been involved with the ship from the beginning. The ship's design was actually done with a lot of input from the British Admiralty before World War I, and the British Admiralty even paid for some of the ship's construction costs. She was built to be easily convertible to a naval vessel during wartime, even with fittings for weapons, and during the war, the ship was modified to have a large lower cargo area specifically for smuggling ammunition and weapons. And in fact, when it set out on what would be its final voyage, these cargo holds of the Lusitania were jammed full of gunpowder, artillery shells, and over six million rounds of small arms ammunition, in all totaling approximately 11 tons of gunpowder. This is why there were secondary explosions, and why the ship went down so quickly much fewer people would have died in Lusitania had the ship not been jammed full of gunpowder and ammunition. Now, the German government knew that the Lusitania was not just an innocent, you know, cruise ship. They knew that it was carrying contraband, legit contraband. And they even contacted the Wilson administration, got a message through to let them know that they knew Lusitania was carrying contraband, and therefore they considered it a legitimate target. 
And remember, at the time, yeah, it might seem, you know, really nasty of the Germans to be willing to kill hundreds or even, you know, over a thousand civilians as it happened. But remember, at the time, not only were the Germans fighting from their perspective for national survival against three great powers of Europe simultaneously, but as I mentioned before, German civilians were dying by the thousands and tens of thousands because of the British blockade. So I'm sure to a German, you know, your civilians are dropping like flies from the British blockade. You would look at, you know, killing a thousand civilians and say, well, it's unfortunate, but they kind of have it coming in the same way, by the way, that the U.S. in World War II, you know, firebombs Dresden, firebombs Tokyo, nukes Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in all four of those bombings, the overwhelming majority of people incinerated were civilians. But the U.S. government in that case said, well, we thought this was necessary to win the war more quickly. So if it's okay to kill hundreds of thousands of civilians by dropping fire on them from the sky, if that's fine, justified by the, you know, circumstances of total war, compared to that, taking out a thousand civilians on a passenger liner because you know it's smuggling war contraband to your enemy, I'm sorry, but the math just tells you that shouldn't be as bad. Now, the Wilson administration, having received this warning from the Germans, could have made a big public announcement to the American people, like, hey, don't sail on the Lusitania. We have reason to believe it's going to be targeted. But they didn't. They also, theoretically, could have, you know, put in place some sort of a ban. I don't know, an executive order or something, especially a guy like Woodrow Wilson, who, you know, doesn't believe in, in strictly following the Constitution and believes the president should have a huge amount of leeway to just kind of do things. Theoretically, if he was genuinely committed to minimizing the danger to American civilians caused by this war and genuinely committed to being neutral and staying out of it, he could have issued some sort of an order saying Americans are not allowed to travel on the Lusitania. But he didn't. And when the Wilson administration refused to relay the German warning to the public, that evil German government, those bloodthirsty SOBs who just like killing people for fun, well, they then arranged to have ads placed in American newspapers before the Lusitania's voyage, the one that would be its last, to warn Americans not to go on the Lusitania. And I'll read you the text of the ad. Quote, Notice, travelers intending to bark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies. That the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. The Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., 22 April, 1915. End quote. And there's lots of other fishy things about the Lusitania that make it look like a setup. So, just a few more that I'll mention here, and again, this isn't everything, because, again, I could make a whole multi-hour episode just on the Lusitania, but when the Lusitania neared the war zone, the dangerous waters off the British Isles, there was a ship that had been accompanying her, a British naval escort that had been accompanying her the entire way across the Atlantic, a destroyer called the Juno. 
And right as Lusitania was approaching the war zone waters, the Juno was ordered away to go do something else somewhere else. So that's kind of weird. They have a naval escort for most of the voyage where there probably aren't going to be any German U-boats. And as soon as they get to the danger zone, their naval escort is ordered to go somewhere else. That's pretty weird. Also, something very interesting, the Lusitania at the time was probably the fastest ship, or at least certainly the fastest civilian liner in the Atlantic Ocean. And yet, as it reached the war zone, the Lusitania slowed down. The Lusitania could do 24 knots at top speed. U-boats could only do about 12 knots, and that was on the surface. If they were submerged, they could only do around six knots. So if the Lusitania, you know, you would think if you were really trying to avoid getting potentially attacked, you would think that you would like step on the gas when you're hitting the danger zone, because then that makes it very hard for U-boats to, you know, attack you because you're way faster than them. Why would you slow down? Also, by the way, when the ship was attacked, it was moving in a straight line course even though standard operating procedure was supposed to be that ships would zigzag when they were in war zone waters in order to make them harder targets to hit. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, with their naval escort gone, with their speed reduced, and with them on a nice straight course, by golly, a German sub sank the Lusitania. Who could have seen it coming? At the time, the British government vehemently denied claims that Lusitania was carrying any ammunition or other war contraband. But... The ship's cargo manifest actually listed among its cargo thousands of rounds of ammunition and over a thousand shrapnel artillery shells and other things that were considered war contraband. And many decades later, when the wreck was eventually located, divers went down and verified that the ship was in fact jammed full of munitions. At the time, Woodrow Wilson knew the Lusitania had been carrying munitions. The Germans had sent him that message telling him that they, you know, knew what the Lusitania was up to. And in addition, his own Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, also apparently told him that the Lusitania was not what it appeared, was not just, you know, a purely innocent civilian transport ship. But Wilson chose, you know, I guess either to not believe this or for whatever reason chose to just keep his mouth shut. He didn't even though he had lots of reason to believe that the Lusitania was smuggling war contraband, he chose not to go public with this information, to talk to the press or the American people and say, hey, the Lusitania isn't what you think it is. It's more complicated. It was carrying literally tons of ammunition and gunpowder. Instead, the Wilson administration issued some of its strongest condemnations of Germany as horrible, barbaric, and whatever. Ultimately, William Jennings Bryan resigned as Secretary of State over the handling of the whole Lusitania incident. And he was replaced as Secretary of State by a guy named Robert Lansing, who was, unlike Bryan, very pro-war and very pro-British. Again, Bryan had actually wanted to really be neutral and really try to stay out of the war. Lansing very much on Team Britain, you know, Team Intervention. By the way, Lansing was an uncle of the famous Dulles brothers. Of course, 
John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State under Eisenhower in the 50s, and Alan Dulles, who was CIA director during the same period but stayed on into the early days of the JFK administration, until JFK fired him in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs. Weirdly, by the way, Alan Dulles was made one of the Warren Commissioners after JFK's assassination. And if you don't know or don't remember, the Warren Commission is the official commission that concluded that Oswald had acted completely alone and he was the only guy involved and that he had done it. So, I've always thought that was pretty weird, that, you know, a president gets assassinated and a guy that just, you know, a couple years earlier, a year and a half earlier or whatever, that that president had fired in disgrace and who had reason to hate that president gets put as one of the top people investigating the circumstances of that president's death. Like, that's just pretty weird. Anti-war progressive Republican Senator Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin also found out the truth, and he even spoke out in Congress on the real truth, the whole truth, the full story of the Lusitania, at least, you know, to the degree that he had information at the time. But of course, he wasn't listened to by many people. In fact, he was vilified and demonized, and an effort was even launched, ultimately unsuccessful, to try to impeach him and remove him from office. For their part, Wellington House, not surprisingly, made everything they could out of the Lusitania in their propaganda, especially in the propaganda aimed at the U.S. And the sinking of the Lusitania would be the single biggest event in turning American opinion against Germany prior to the last straws in 1917. But ultimately, Wilson, though he talked very strongly against Germany, did not take the U.S. to war in 1915, in the aftermath of the Lusitania. Instead, he waited until after he was safely re-elected, and then, in early 1917, the Zimmerman telegram was intercepted by British intelligence and relayed to the United States, and also, in early 1917, the Germans would resume unrestricted U-boat warfare, which they put on hold in the aftermath of the Lusitania. So, that one-two punch, not the Lusitania sinking, were Wilson's causus belli for getting into the war. But nonetheless, the Lusitania and its portrayal by Wellington House were very important in terms of laying the groundwork for American intervention two years later. Another fishy thing about the Lusitania I can't help but mention here. According to Wilson's right-hand man at the time, Edward Mandel House, writing in his own diary, and House spent much of the war in Europe, he was sort of like Wilson's informal roving ambassador during the period before America intervened in the war, especially. According to House's own diary, on the very morning that the Lusitania was sunk, House was in London at the time, and he said that he had a meeting that very morning with Lord Grey, and then with King George V himself. Of his meeting with Lord Grey, one of the most powerful men in the British government, House wrote, quote, we spoke of the probability of an ocean liner being sunk, and I told him if this were done, a flame of indignation would sweep across America, which would in itself carry us into the war, end quote. And of his meeting, later the very same day with the king at Buckingham Palace, House wrote that the king also brought up the subject of an ocean liner being sunk, and the king had actually said 
Quote, Suppose they should sink the Lusitania with American passengers aboard? Question mark. End quote. The next day, the day after the Lusitania was sunk, the king wanted to meet with House again. And according to House, quote, He said he had been struck by the fact that two hours after we had discussed the possible sinking of a transatlantic liner, mentioning the Lusitania as being perhaps the unfortunate ship, she was sunk. He had spoken of it to the Queen as a strange coincidence. He thought it was strange that I had said such an instance might provoke the United States into the war, and he was wondering what I thought of it today. End quote. Strange coincidence indeed. What are the frickin' odds? The British propaganda version of the sinking of the Lusitania, of course, was completely different from the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In their version, of course, the Lusitania did not appear to be a virtual sitting duck as it really was, and of course, in their version, its cargo holds absolutely were not jammed full of literal tons of munitions. Nope. In their version, it was a harrowing tale of an evil German U-boat targeting a totally innocent and defenseless civilian liner that did its level best to try to dodge the attack. Furthermore, the British put out stories that there were a whole bunch of U-boats lurking in the area, and that they were attacking any ships that tried to go rescue survivors of the Lusitania. And Wellington House just went to town putting out propaganda related to the Lusitania sinking. One of the British government's many, many, many wartime propaganda posters, one known as Poster Number 97, cataloged a ton of alleged German atrocities, including some of the ones I've mentioned in this episode, plus many I have not just because of time. But at the top of this poster, the headline in red font said, quote, COLD-BLOODED MURDER, in all caps. And then, Remember Germany's crowning infamy, the sinking of the Lusitania, with hundreds of women and children. End quote. Their version of the Lusitania's sinking was, as with all their prior atrocity stories, pumped heavily into America through all of their various channels and intermediaries. The New York Times ran an editorial on May 8th titled, War by Assassination, in which they argued, quote, There must go to the imperial government at Berlin a demand that the Germans shall no longer make war like savages drunk in blood. In the history of wars, there is no single deed comparable in its inhumanity and horror. Germany has wantonly and without provocation used dastardly assassination methods. This transcends in atrocity anything our government could have apprehended, exhibiting a degree of brutality which is commonly associated with madness. End quote. Now look, a thousand people getting killed is, you know, no small matter. But to say that that's like the worst thing that's ever happened in history. Really. I mean, sure, this was written before, you know, the worst democides of the 20th century happened. You know, before the communists took over in the Soviet Union and China and before the Nazis were even a thing. So, okay, but you can still go back 
from ancient history through medieval history and into the early modern period. And you can find plenty of cases of worse things than 1,000 people getting killed. Like just the conquests of Genghis Khan alone make 1,000 people getting killed in a ship being sunk, you know, seem like a rounding error. But, you know, that's what you do. You get hysterical, you exaggerate, whatever. It's just like the people who have said, you know, oh, January 6th is as bad as Pearl Harbor and 9-11 combined or whatever like that. It's just insane. And it wasn't just the New York Times. Most of the other major New York City papers, including the Herald, the Sun, the Tribune, and the World, ran similar takes. And of course, many smaller local and regional papers throughout the country would echo these sorts of sentiments, as they often do, you know, following the lead of the big boys. British propagandists also pumped out all sorts of false stories about the German reaction to the sinking of Lusitania. For example, they claimed that German schoolchildren were given the day off from school as a holiday to celebrate the sinking, which was not true. They also put out stories claiming that the German government had created a special medal to award to the crew of the U-boat that sank the ship. When this was debunked, they then claimed that the German government had actually created a commemoration medal for the public to celebrate the sinking. Weirdly, these supposed Lusitania commemoration medals were widely circulated and available in the UK and in many neutral countries. And yet, during and in the aftermath of the war, they were extremely hard to come by in Germany. When one was finally tracked down in Germany after the war, it turned out it had been made by a private metal worker, not by the German government. And that the metal's main point that it was trying to make was not celebrating the sinking, but simply making the point that the Lusitania had been carrying contraband. Not many of these medals were even made, and they were never officially endorsed or circulated by the German government. Eventually, almost a decade after the war ended, the truth was finally revealed as to why these medals were so abundant in the UK, the US, and some other countries, but were not very common in Germany. Lord Newton, who during the war worked on propaganda at the British Foreign Office, which did some of their own separate propaganda from Wellington House, Lord Newton had somehow gotten one of these medals, the original ones from Germany during the war, and he revealed in the Evening Standard in 1926, quote, I asked a West End store if they could undertake the reproduction of it for propaganda purposes. They agreed to do so, and the medals were sold all over the world in neutral countries, especially in America and South America. After some initial difficulty, a great success was achieved. I believe this to have been one of the best pieces of propaganda. End quote. By the way, as I briefly mentioned a little while ago, in response to American outrage over the Lusitania, the evil German government actually suspended unrestricted U-boat warfare for almost the next two years. That's how much, in 1915, they were actually trying to avoid provoking the U.S. But the British, for their part, continued their propaganda operations in the U.S. right up into early 1917, when, like I said before, the combination of the Zimmerman telegram plus Germany resuming unrestricted U-boat warfare 
which they did in 1917 because even though they knew doing so would probably provoke America into the war, they were more desperate by that point in the war than back in 1915, and they also sensed a strategic opportunity as well. But anyway, when those two things gave Wilson what he needed to ask for and get a declaration of war, now that he was safely reelected, by the way, this was something I believe Wilson had been intending to do for a while. Since at least the Lusitania, if not earlier, I believe he had already made the decision to eventually get into the war. He just kept publicly saying he wanted to be neutral up through his re-election, because he knew that was the popular stance that a majority of Americans wanted to hear. Well, once America officially entered the war, Gilbert Parker, the head of British propaganda in the U.S., basically declared mission accomplished, and he resigned from his position in British propaganda operations in the U.S., pretty quickly wound down. But during those almost three years that Britain operated this giant propaganda operation in the U.S., what's really interesting is that some of Parker's intermediaries and outlets, you know, American individuals and publications and so forth, some of them knew, perhaps even a majority of them knew, they were getting information ultimately from Gilbert Parker, although some did not. The British were very good at information laundering. But what's interesting is, even the people that knew they were getting information from Gilbert Parker, they had no idea that Parker was running a giant propaganda operation working directly for the UK government. They just thought he was a prominent, you know, Anglo-Canadian living in the United States. They didn't know he was basically a propaganda secret agent working directly for the British state. Now, immediately upon American official entry into the war, Woodrow Wilson very quickly set up the U.S.'s own propaganda-slash-censorship bureau, the famous Committee on Public Information, which will no doubt feature prominently in a lot of the future installments in this miniseries. So, to wind down, let's kind of, you know, pull the lens out and look at how did Wellington House influence the U.S.? What results did they get as far as we can try and estimate or measure? David Lloyd George became Prime Minister of the UK in December of 1916. He had always been personally very interested in propaganda operations since the war began. And soon after he came to power as Prime Minister, he commissioned a report on British propaganda operations thus far in the war. This report, which was completed in January 1917, was actually mostly negative. For the most part, it said that Britain's propaganda efforts had been pretty disorganized and uncoordinated, and maybe not a lot of it had been terribly effective. But what's interesting is, this report has one very noteworthy exception, and that is the American branch of Wellington House, of which this report said that it, quote, could not have been handled more successfully and with more tact and better results than it has been, end quote. Now, not only did Parker resign, but as I kind of alluded to a few minutes ago, the American Department of Wellington House was actually disbanded soon after the U.S. officially entered the war in April 1917 because it had basically accomplished its mission. And for almost a year, at the request of the British government, Gilbert Parker said nothing in public about the giant propaganda operation he had run in the U.S. 
Then, even while the war was still going on, he broke his silence. He actually spilled the beans to the American people. For anybody who wanted to read it. He wrote an article directed at an American audience that was titled The United States and the War, and that was published in Harper's Monthly Magazine in March of 1918. And in this article, he came clean about most of what he and his department had done. So think about what this means. This means that for over 100 years, the American people should have known what he had done, what had been done to them, as far as propagandizing them into World War I. And yet, I doubt more than a fraction of a percent of Americans today have the slightest clue about this giant British propaganda operation I've been talking about in this episode that helped to pull the U.S. into World War I. In fact, I get the impression that even a lot of American historians who focus on the World War I era today probably don't know much about what I've been covering in this episode. They probably know a lot about the American propaganda once the Committee on Public Information was set up. But I bet you most American historians of World War I today know little or nothing about this giant British propaganda operation. Anyway, here's a little bit of what Parker had to say in that March 1918 article. Quote, Practically since the day war broke out between England and the Central Powers, I became responsible for American publicity. I need hardly say that the scope of my department was very extensive and its activities widely ranged. The work was one of extreme difficulty and delicacy. We supplied 360 newspapers in the smaller states of the United States with an English newspaper, which gave a weekly review and comments of the affairs of the war. We established connection with the man in the street through cinema pictures of the Army and Navy, as well as through interviews, articles, pamphlets, etc., and by letters in reply to individual American critics, which were printed in the chief newspapers of the state in which they lived, and were copied in newspapers of other and neighboring states. We advised and stimulated many people to write articles. We utilized the friendly services and assistance of confidential friends. We had reports from important Americans constantly and established association by personal correspondence with influential and eminent people of every profession in the United States, beginning with university and college presidents, professors, and scientific men, and running through all the ranges of the population. We asked our friends and correspondents for speeches, debates, and lectures by American citizens. We had our documents and literature sent to great numbers of public libraries, YMCA societies, universities, colleges, historical societies, clubs, and newspapers. End quote. And that was it. In March of 1918, the war wasn't even over yet. He spills the beans, and yet, you know, most people at the time probably never read that article. And again, probably virtually nobody today, you know, statistically almost zero Americans today, know what I've shared with you over the course of this extensive episode. In fact, in 1918, the same year Parker published this article admitting what he had done, the United States Senate held hearings, not on the British propaganda operations in the U.S., but on the far, far less extensive and far, far less effective German propaganda in the U.S. And it seems that the Senate, whether willfully or not, 
was oblivious to all of Parker's revelations, even though he spilled the beans. And, as Stuart Halsey Ross puts it, quote, Those hearings were conducted in a surreal atmosphere, as if British propaganda aimed at influencing American actions had never existed. End quote. Now, I'm going to talk just a little bit about German propaganda operations in the U.S. during World War I, because they did do so. But, by contrast with British propaganda ops in the U.S., which were mostly very slick, very skillful, and backed with a lot of money and resources and genuine talent, the German propaganda operations in the U.S. during World War I, prior to American entry, were much less in both quantity and quality. And the Germans already would have been at a disadvantage in the information war. Because, you know, A, even before this war, most of the American elites were at least to some degree anglophilic and Teutonophobic. And some of them were extremely so even before the war. B, there was the fact that the British were always going to have an advantage over the Germans in propagandizing the U.S. simply due to the language issue. And C, the fact that at the very outset of the war, as we covered early on, the British destroyed the telegraph cables that connected Germany to the U.S. and kept their own up and running for the whole war. It becomes obvious that the deck was already stacked against the Germans when the war started. But the Germans didn't even do a very slick job of trying to counter some of these disadvantages. Instead, the German propaganda efforts in the U.S. were much more ad hoc, they were much more ham-fisted, and as such, their propaganda was much more likely to be spotted by Americans as being propaganda. While the British propaganda in the U.S. was much more effective precisely because it was much better at disguising that it was propaganda. And as I always say like a broken record, the most effective propaganda is always that which doesn't appear to be propaganda to most, you know, observers or consumers or whatever you want to call them. Now, not all advantages were on the British side at the outset, because while a good number of Americans, particularly among the elites, were already Anglophiles before the war, the Germans still did have some fairly large blocks of Americans who might be sympathetic to the Germans, or at the very least hostile to the British, or both. And those two groups would be Irish Americans and German Americans, who combined were probably at least 20%, if not more, of the American population when World War I started. German Americans were most numerous in the cities of the Midwest, and a lot of Midwestern cities had significant German immigrant communities that even had many pretty large circulation German language newspapers. Also, there's reason to believe that at the time of World War I, many Jewish Americans might actually have been more sympathetic to the Germans in this war. And this might seem counterintuitive given what happens later with the Nazis and everything, but in the early 20th century, in the years and decades leading up to World War I, by most measures, the government of France could be accused of being more anti-Semitic than the government of Germany. And much more so, the government of Russia was more anti-Semitic than the German Kaiserreich. And in addition to Irish Americans and German Americans, various groups of American activists, including socialists, 
and many, though by no means all, labor unionists, and of course, you know, various pacifist groups, opposed participation in the war at all. One more group of Americans who were potentially receptive to at least some of Germany's arguments and propaganda were those Americans whom Stuart Halsey Ross describes as, quote, a tiny minority of the well-informed who understood the fundamentals, that the war was due not to a single cause, but to a critical mix. The balance of power alliance system, an untrammeled arms race, chauvinistic nationalism, imperial rivalry, and the root cause of all major wars, economic competition, end quote. Ah, yes, the reasonable, informed, logical people who actually understand sophisticated adult ideas, like that wars are almost never simplistic, morally one-sided affairs of pure good fighting pure evil. But unfortunately, people like that were at least as rare in the 19-teens as they are in the 2020s in America. Or, as Ross puts it, quote, The majority of Americans, however, were of English origin and consciously or not inclined toward the Entente powers. The main man running Germany's propaganda, or at least kind of supervising it in the U.S. at the time, was Count Johann von Bernstorff, who was Germany's ambassador to the U.S. And after the war, Bernstorff wrote of Germany's propaganda work, quote, in the two and a half years between the outbreak of war and the rupture between Germany and America, the sums paid out from official funds for propaganda work in the Union did not, all told, exceed a million dollars. This is surely only a small fraction of what England and France have expended during the war, in spite of very thorough preparation in peacetime to win over American public opinion to their cause. The 35 to $50 million, which according to the statements of our enemies, were swallowed up by German propaganda in the United States belong, therefore, to the realm of fable. End quote. Yeah, the British put out the narrative that it was Germany that was dumping huge amounts of resources into trying to propagandize Americans, when in fact, the opposite was overwhelmingly true. Yes, the Germans poured some resources into it, but it was a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what the British did. Bernstorff had bad luck in terms of his subordinates in the propaganda operations. His first point man on propaganda got himself into a lot of heat for defending the sinking of the Lusitania on the very day after it went down. Now, what he said was factually correct. His main points in a speech he gave that got a lot of heat were that the Lusitania had been carrying munitions and that Germany had warned Americans not to sail on the ship, which was true. But people were hysterical and emotional, and so much public hatred was raised by the American press against him that Bernstorff had him sent back home to Germany. Bernstorff's next point man on propaganda, a guy named Dr. Heinrich F. Albert, blundered even worse. He initially seemed to be having some success in America, and in fact, prior to getting involved in propaganda operations, he had actually begun the process of setting up a secretly German-owned munitions company in Connecticut. Construction began on this plant in April 1915, and the plan was for it to begin operating in September, but it never came to pass. Because after only a couple of months on the propaganda job, on July 24th, 1915, 
things went awry for Dr. Albert. The U.S. Secret Service, which, if you don't know, is part of the Treasury Department, and which at the time the Treasury Department was headed by William Gibbs McAdoo, whom you may remember from my Woodrow Wilson episodes, was not only Wilson's Secretary of the Treasury, but also his son-in-law, after he married one of Wilson's daughters. The U.S. Secret Service began surveilling various high-level German government personnel in the U.S. in May of 1915, under an executive order from Wilson himself. By the way, to my knowledge, no such order was ever issued to have the Secret Service or anybody else surveil British government officials in the U.S., or French, or Russian, or anybody else. So, the story of what happened to bring about Albert's downfall and really cause a lot of damage for the German propaganda efforts was that in New York City on July 25th, 1915, Secret Service agents were supposedly following a German propagandist around, a guy they already knew about, when that man met up with another German who they did not know at the time. It was Dr. Albert. Albert was carrying a large briefcase. The agents would later report that they didn't know what the two men said to each other because they were speaking in German, and the agents didn't speak German. Which, that's a great idea. Send some guys to go follow around some potential, you know, German spies or whatever, but make sure that they don't speak any German, the agents, right? So, the agents tailed these men through part of the city, and eventually they tailed them onto a train. And according to one of the agents, Albert got off at a stop and initially forgot to bring his briefcase. And the agent quickly ran in and snatched it. By the way, this was a violation of international law, because Albert was an employee of the German embassy, so stealing his personal briefcase would have been a crime. Then the agent said Albert kind of realized what had happened, and was trying to get back into the train to get his briefcase, and saw that, you know, someone was taking it. But... Even though Albert tried chasing him, the agent managed to get off the train and got away. The agent then contacted his supervisor, who contacted McAdoo, and before long the briefcase was in McAdoo's hands. As McAdoo later wrote in his memoirs, After examining the material in the briefcase, he concluded there wasn't enough to prosecute a criminal case yet, but that, quote, Illegitimate activities were going on. Our neutrality laws were being grossly violated. I saw an opportunity to throw a reverberating scare into the whole swarm of propagandists, British and French, as well as German, and I decided that this could be done most effectively through publicity. End quote. Woodrow Wilson and Colonel House were consulted, and they agreed with McAdoo. So, they decided to publicize it via the New York World newspaper which was Wilson's favorite paper, and the top editorialist of the paper, Frank I. Cobb, was Wilson's favorite journalist and a good friend. The only thing the administration asked of the world was that they conceal the fact that the Secret Service had stolen the briefcase, because again, that was technically illegal. While most of what was revealed by the contents of the briefcase was actually things that were totally legal, the Wilson administration, via the New York world, would basically prosecute Albert and the German propaganda apparatus in the realm of public opinion. 
On August 15th, the Sunday edition of The World bore this on its front page. Quote, How Germany has worked in U.S. to shape opinion, block the Allies, and get munitions for herself, told in secret agents' letters. Chancellor, ambassador, financial agent, and bankers, chief figures in vast scheme, revealed in documents obtained by the world. Fatherland financed, author Fox's expenses paid, plans laid to buy press association and otherwise control news of the war. Cost put it two million dollars a week. End quote. Bernstorff, after the war, said, yeah, the Germans never spent more than a million dollars all told the entire war in America. Back to the New York World, quote, Bernstorff draft one million one hundred thousand dollars. Big arms plant and powder works, which outwardly dicker with allies, secretly owned by Germany, and preparing to deliver munitions September 1st, end quote. That's, of course, that thing in Connecticut, which obviously, at this point, when it was exposed, was done for. Back to the New York World, quote, Edison's supply of carbolic acid taken over for shipment, plans to buy right plant considered, poison gas supply of allies crippled, strikes in munitions plants fomented, end quote. And more hyped-up, lurid stories about the contents of the briefcase were published over the next four days in the pages of the world. All of this exposed lots of the parts of Germany's propaganda efforts in the U.S. that were not already known to the public, and it amped up public paranoia about German propagandists and just general covert operatives in the U.S. Which, of course, there were. But... There were also British propagandists and covert operatives in the U.S., and in fact, there were much more of them, and they were operating much more effectively, and they were almost all beneath the radar, because they had at least some degree of official looking the other wayness on the part of the Wilson administration. Now, I want to note here the fact that the Germans were actually aiming at a lesser goal in their propaganda than the British were. They were actually trying to do something less in terms of manipulating American opinion. And what I mean by that is that the Germans didn't even bother trying to convince the U.S. to go into the war on the side of the Central Powers. All they ever wanted to do was to convince the Americans to stay neutral, to stay out of it. Whereas the British were aiming at a much bigger goal. They wanted to convince the U.S., to actively join the war as an ally of Britain and an enemy of Germany. But even with the fact that the German propagandists, you know, to them a quote-unquote victory was a lower bar than it was for the British propagandists, in other words, that basically the British propagandists were aiming at an outright propaganda win in the U.S., while the Germans would have considered something like a propaganda draw as a success for them. Even so, the propaganda war was so lopsided in favor of the British that it was barely a contest at all, all things considered. As Stuart Halsey Ross writes, quote, Berlin never set up an equivalent to the American Department of Wellington House. Except for ample funds and a steady flow of German-language propaganda material, the German propagandists in the United States got little formal help from overseas. And, unlike the cautious, smoothly functioning British, the Germans were unable to keep their propaganda work quiet. As much a result of their own ham-handedness as of brazenly non-neutral U.S. Secret Service surveillance. End quote. 
So this is my kind of overall take on why the Germans decisively lost the propaganda war in America. First, of course, they had pre-existing disadvantages from the start versus the British. As we've already mentioned, you know, common language, the American Anglo, you know, establishment is already on their side. Most of the elite establishment media outlets were already on their side at the start of the war. But those initial advantages might not have been enough if the Germans had really understood and skillfully played the propaganda game in America. But they didn't. The British not only started off with a bunch of important advantages, but they then also played the game much, much more skillfully than the Germans did. In particular, you know, through their monopoly on the telegraph, the British were able to achieve information hegemony in terms of information coming into the U.S. during the war. The British also devoted way more resources to propaganda in the U.S. than the Germans ever did. The British did a much better job of concealing their propaganda in the U.S. than the Germans did, so most British propaganda wasn't seen for what it was by the American public. Also, the British were very smart in that they preferred to appeal to emotions. They tried to sensationalize everything and to demonize the Germans, especially the Kaiser. Whereas the Germans in their propaganda were much more likely to try and make rationalistic and legalistic arguments. Also, a lot of the resources Germany did devote to propaganda in the U.S. were devoted to the German language press in the U.S. Which, as I said before, was at the time pretty significant given the large German-American immigrant population. But this was a huge mistake. Because people who already were reading German-language publications in the U.S. probably were already at least somewhat more sympathetic to the German point of view and more skeptical of the British. So basically doing that was preaching to the choir. Also, the British put in much greater efforts to really trying to understand the American public and to continuously try to get whatever feedback they could as things went along, in order to ascertain what types of propaganda were working and what types weren't. The Germans never systematically tried to do this. Lastly, the Germans were almost always on defense, rather than offense, in their propaganda. As Stuart Halsey Ross puts it, quote, From the start of the war, much of Germany's propaganda in the United States was counter-propaganda. The Germans were forced into a defensive, reactive approach to the avalanche of propaganda themes of the British. End quote. So, despite the fact that much of the British propaganda operations in the U.S. began to be exposed quickly after the war, and in fact, you know, remember that 1918 article by Parker himself actually came out before the war was even over, and a whole bunch more about this came out in the 1920s and 30s. Despite that, due to the power of propaganda, 
most Americans walking around back then, and probably most Americans walking around today, still basically have in their heads, to the degree that they think they know anything about World War I, they still probably have in their heads the British narrative of the war. And I think this is yet another illustration of that statement, it is easier to fool a man than to convince him that he has been fooled. This statement is often attributed to Mark Twain, although it seems, according to a little bit of kind of admittedly cursory research, that Twain may have never actually wrote that exact phrase. But even if he didn't, he certainly expressed similar sentiments in other words at various times. And regardless of who actually coined that exact phrase, it is a great saying with a lot of truth in it. And it's one of the many bad aspects of propaganda. That once a people have been heavily propagandized about something, many of them will never give up the beliefs that propaganda implanted in them, regardless of how much overwhelming evidence comes to light that should debunk the narratives they believe. In fact, attempts by honest revisionist historians and researchers to use really, really uncool, not fun tools like, you know, reason and evidence to debunk propaganda lies will, for some significant percentage of those who have been propagandized, simply trigger what psychologists refer to as the backfire effect, in which a person with faulty beliefs when they're confronted with strong contrary evidence, they will often actually double down on their false beliefs. Because the truth is, most people believe the things they believe for reasons other than true reason and evidence. The British government was the first in history to essentially hijack the U.S. elite and U.S. media and U.S. foreign policy for the benefit of themselves, at the expense of the blood and treasure of average middle and working class Americans, as well as to the detriment of the medium and long-term peace and stability of much of the world. And in this regard, they really blazed a trail that has since been followed by a number of other states, including, but not limited to, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Ukraine, to name but three of the biggest players of this game in recent times. In more recent times, the game seems to be played somewhat differently than back a hundred plus years ago in World War I. Today, foreign governments will use various means to lobby U.S. politicians and do things like fund think tanks in the U.S., and then they can count on a compliant mainstream kind of pro-war, pro-empire corporate U.S. media to do what they always do, which is first to echo and amplify what the D.C. establishment wants the American people to think and to support, and second to refrain from divulging to average Americans just how much foreign money is used to buy influence with the U.S. government. In the same way, for example, that the media refrains from telling their viewers how many of the quote-unquote experts they bring on on things like war, foreign policy, and so forth are actually currently, as they're talking on TV about what we ought to do, on the payroll of companies like Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, and so forth. Thus, the degree of foreign influence buying in the U.S. 
while much of it is technically not secret, is concealed via a continuous lie by omission on the part of the corporate media. By the way, the best person I'm aware of who covers the ways that foreign governments use big money to buy influence with U.S. politicians and to hijack U.S. foreign policy for their own purposes is a guy named Ben Freeman, who specializes in covering all of this. And Scott Horton has had him on his show several times, including one in February on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, in which Freeman outlined the huge amount of Ukrainian lobbying in the U.S., which, if I remember right, what he said, I think according to Freeman, over the past year or so, Ukraine lobbying in the U.S. actually exceeded the lobbying of Israel and Saudi Arabia, which are usually the two biggest players of this game in recent times. Scott also in Scott also interviewed Freeman more recently about this phenomenon in general, including the Saudi influence buying and its connection to U.S. support for the horrific Saudi war in Yemen. And I'll link to those two interviews that I mentioned in the show notes for this episode. But before I close things out, I want to share with you some excerpts from George Washington's famous farewell address from 1796, when he was getting ready to step down after two terms as president. While the address covers a lot of different subjects, one of the most interesting passages is where he gives his thoughts on foreign policy. By the way, I often say these days, while I have a lot of criticisms of George Washington, and I don't buy the kind of standard, you know, hagiography narrative about him. Nonetheless, you know, you got to compare things and put them in context. And I certainly think he was a wiser man and a better leader than 99% of our politicians today. But anyway, here's what Washington had to say to the nation on his way out about foreign policy. Quote, Observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Who can doubt that, in the course of time and things, the fruits of such a plan would richly repay any temporary advantages which might be lost by a steady adherence to it? Can it be that providence has not connected the permanent felicity of a nation with its virtue? The experiment, at least, is recommended by every sentiment which ennobles human nature. Alas, it is rendered impossible by its vices. In the execution of such a plan, nothing is more essential than that permanent, inveterate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments to others should be excluded, and that, in place of them, just and amicable feelings towards all should be cultivated. The nation which indulges towards another an habitual hatred or an habitual fondness is in some degree a slave. It is a slave to its animosity or to its affection, either of which is sufficient to lead it astray from its duty and its interest. Antipathy in one nation against another disposes each more readily to offer insult and injury 
to lay hold of slight causes of umbrage, and to be haughty and intractable when accidental or trifling occasions of dispute occur. Hence, frequent collisions, obstinate, envenomed, and bloody contests. The nation, prompted by ill will and resentment, sometimes impels to war the government, contrary to the best calculations of policy. The government sometimes participates in the national propensity and adopts through passion what reason would reject. At other times, it makes the animosity of the nation subservient to projects of hostility instigated by pride, ambition, and other sinister and pernicious motives. The peace often, sometimes perhaps the liberty, of nations has been the victim. So likewise, a passionate attachment of one nation for another produces a variety of evils. Sympathy for the favorite nation facilitating the illusion of an imaginary common interest in cases where no real common interest exists, and infusing into one the enmities of the other, betrays the former into a participation in the quarrels and wars of the latter, without adequate inducement or justification. It leads also to concessions to the favorite nation of privileges denied to others, which is apt doubly to injure the nation making the concessions, by unnecessarily parting with what ought to have been retained, and by exciting jealousy, ill-will, and a disposition to retaliate in the parties from whom equal privileges are withheld. And it gives to ambitious, corrupted, or deluded citizens— who devote themselves to the favorite nation, facility to betray or sacrifice the interests of their own country without odium, sometimes even with popularity, gilding with the appearance of a virtuous sense of obligation, a commendable deference for public opinion, or a laudable zeal for public good. The base or foolish compliances of ambition, corruption, or infatuation as avenues to foreign influence in innumerable ways, such attachments are particularly alarming to the truly enlightened and independent patriot. How many opportunities do they afford to tamper with domestic factions, to practice the arts of seduction, to mislead public opinion, to influence or awe the public councils? Such an attachment of a small or weak towards a great and powerful nation dooms the former to be the satellite of the latter. Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, I conjure you to believe me, fellow citizens. The jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake. Since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government, but that jealousy, to be useful, must be impartial, else it becomes the instrument of the very influence to be avoided, instead of a defense against it. Excessive partiality for one foreign nation and excessive dislike of another cause those whom they actuate to see danger only on one side and serve to veil and even second the arts of influence on the other. Real patriots who may resist the intrigues of the favorite are liable to become suspected and odious, while its tools and dupes usurp the applause and confidence of the people to surrender their interest. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is 
in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. So far as we have already formed engagements, let them be fulfilled with perfect good faith. Here, let us stop. Europe has a set of primary interests which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her politics or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enemies. Our detached and distant situation invites and enables us to pursue a different course. If we remain one people, under an efficient government, the period is not far off when we may defy material injury from external annoyance, when we may take such an attitude as will cause the neutrality we may at any time resolve upon to be scrupulously respected, when belligerent nations under the impossibility of making acquisitions upon us will not lightly hazard the giving us provocation, when we may choose peace or war as our interest, guided by justice, shall counsel. Why forego the advantages of so peculiar a situation? Why quit our own to stand upon foreign ground? Why, by interweaving our destiny with any part of Europe, entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalship, interest, humor, or caprice? End quote. Well, that's it for this gigantic episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned a lot. Huge amounts went into this episode. A lot of work goes into all my episodes, but one like this that's, you know, a solo deep dive and that's many hours long, just like literally months and months and months of work went into this. Even just the recording was spread out over the course of more than two months. If you get value from the work that I do and you're not already a supporter of the show, please, please consider doing so. Currently via Patreon and Subscribestar, although in the future there might be other avenues as well. But Patreon and Subscribestar are the big ones for recurring monthly donations. You can also send in one-time or monthly donations via PayPal, and you can also kick in via Bitcoin. But please consider supporting this show if you don't already do so. And stay tuned, not just for future episodes, including episodes in this series, where I'll cover, you know, what happens to propaganda operations in the U.S. once the U.S. is actually in the war and doing its own propaganda and censorship. But a bunch of other things are in the work as well for you to stay tuned for. But if you want me to keep doing things like this and you want me to maybe do more of this, I need your help. I need your support. So please consider becoming a regular contributor to my work. Or if you don't want to do that, please consider sending in just a one-time PayPal or Bitcoin contribution. Thank you so much for listening. Ten million soldiers to the war have gone who may never return again. Ten million mothers' hearts must break for the one who died in vain.
fell down in sorrow in her lonely years. I heard a mother murmur through her tears. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. And joy, who dared to place a musket on his shoulder to shoot some other mother's darling boy. Let nations operate their future troubles. It's time to lay the sword and gun away. There'd be no war today if mothers all would say, I didn't raise my boy to be as bolder. can hear a mother's heart when she looks at her blighted home. What victory can bring her back all she cares to call her own? Let each mother answer in the years to be. Remember that my boy belongs to me. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. And joy, who dared to place a musket on his shoulder to shoot some other mother's darling boy. Let nations operate their future troubles. It's time to lay the sword and gun away. There'd be no war today if mothers all would say, I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. And joy, who dared to place a musket on his shoulder to shoot some other mother's darling boy. Let nations arbitrate their future troubles. It's time to lay the sword and gun away. There'd be no war today. If mothers all would say, I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.